This podcast is hosted on mtgcast.com with generous sponsorship from quietspeculation.com, Magic's premier financial news site. The staff at Quiet Speculation believes that every Magic player deserves the information that lets them play Magic for less money. To learn more about the fundamentals of getting good trades and instantly engage with a friendly and mature community, go to quietspeculation.com. Vintage Champs, you make the card and the Bazaar of Moxon on episode 25 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 25 of So Many Insane Plays, our Bazaar of Moxon analysis. We're going to dive into the Bazaar of Moxon video, the results, and deck lists to make sense of the largest vintage tournament of the year and the direction of the vintage metagame, and much more. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. As we go through the show, if you have any comments or questions, please tweet us at ManyInsanePlays, or email us at SoManyInsanePlaysPodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us comments where we post our show at EternalCentral.com or MTGCast.com. We look forward to hearing from you. We've got a lot of announcements this episode, Steve. And our biggest announcement is a non-announcement. Yes, unfortunately so. We've recently learned that this year, Gen Con will not be host to the Vintage Championships. We don't know when it will be or where exactly, but we do know that there will be a Vintage Champs, and it will be in the U.S., but we are still awaiting... And it will be this year. <laughs> and it will be this year, but we're still awaiting other details around timing and location. Helen Bergeau, in fact, responded to original MTG art just this evening, saying, not yet, but soon, in response to their question about when we were going to get the actual information. So we're waiting patiently, and we'll be certain to update our audience as soon as we know more. Now, this is particularly devastating news for a number of players, because, as, as Kevin, you know well, planning for Gen Con is something that has to be done far in advance. You can't just, you know, and if you want a hotel room, I mean, you have to book it literally six months in advance, if not further out. Uh, you were talking about trying to book a room this year, and, and describe for our audience what sort of problems you encountered. Well, the process involves a handful of hotels that are within walking distance to the convention center in downtown Indianapolis, Indiana. Those hotels, based on their proximity to the site, will sell out their rooms for the for that weekend in a matter of hours. The ones that are connected to the site, you need to be online and clicking. Hours, hours of what? Uh, meaning there is a registration window for hotel reservations for the convention. It opens. This happens in, in like January. It, that's right. It opens each year in, in or about January. And the moment it goes up, those hotels that are attached to the convention center, meaning literally affixed to them, sell out in minutes. And anything within a couple of miles radius proceeds to sell out, you know, in, in direct relation to its distance over the course of the next few hours. If you wait more than a day in this process, you're going to end up with a, a hotel that's miles away. And this just speaks to the overall commitment that is Gen Con, that is planning for it. 
Yeah, it's really it's really negligent of Wizards to a not let folks know that the vintage championships wouldn't be there far in advance, and b not suggest what the alternative plans are. People need to plan this out in advance. I mean, you know, this is this is something that people plan on an annual basis, months and months in advance, not a couple months in advance, but six to eight to, to twelve months in advance. And the idea that you know fifty, how many people? Probably I would speculate well over fifty, probably well probably over a hundred people had made. Gen Con plans in reliance on vintage and or legacy champs being there, and neither is now there. Yep. You know, this is something that they should have revealed. I mean, I know countless people because think about it, if you're a vintage player in the United States, there are very few opportunities to play in high profile of prestigious vintage events where there is high level competition that's national, if not international. This being the only one, vintage fans flock there. Now, I warned folks a long time ago in that given that this was the 20th anniversary of Magic, as was the case in the 15th anniversary, the vintage championship might not be a Gen Con. But to have not only not vintage at Gen Con, but also not the legacy championship is a double blow. Especially with the recent popularity of Legacy, you know that more and more players are attracted to Gen Con for that particular reason. I think this really belies a lack of connectedness to the vintage community on the part of Wizards. I'm not going to say it's necessarily irresponsible because I believe they have bigger and better plans for this year vis-a-vis yeah. the anniversary. But really, it is it is just a mistake on their part. And Helen apologized on Twitter. She said, yeah, it was a yes. miss. I appreciate I appreciate the apology, but that's simply not good. Enough. Yeah. The fact of the matter is, I tweeted Aaron Forsyth in January, and I said, what's going on here? Uh, I specifically said, is the Vintage Championship going to be a Gen Con? It was a legitimate question because it wasn't in the 15th anniversary. There was no response. It's one thing, I, I, I think everyone can agree, there is a lack of connectedness to the Vintage and Legacy communities, but that's not really, that's not, a, first of all, you can't really fault Wizards for that. You know, they, they don't have to be necessarily connected. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between being a lack of connected and, and frankly, just complete negligence. <laughs> you know, you don't, I mean, when people make reliance plans around a kind of schedule and an event, an annual event, you know, that, that's going to be there to, 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 to wait until May when probably well over 50% of the people who plan to attend the Vintage Championships have already made, you know, have already made vacation arrangements, mm-hmm. you know, and so forth, is they didn't come out and say Vintage Championships won't be there. It was it was actually Jen itself who released the list of the that revealed that fact. So it wasn't Wizards even saying, oh, by the way, it's not, it's not going to be a Gen Con. It was obviously this omission. At a minimum, they should have gotten out ahead of Gen Con hosting or listing of events. Yeah, agree completely. At the very people least. People in the vintage community and, yeah, it, people's indignation and anger is completely justified. Mm-hmm. And an apology, while I appreciate that, is simply not, not acceptable. I can understand back in January when people like us were making Gen Con plans that they might not have had everything nailed down. They might not have even known what they were planning. But at some point between January and May, they made arrangements for a whole set of replacement events, serious events to celebrate the 20th anniversary. Not only did they not announce those events, they were scooped by Gen Con on the fact that there would be such celebratory events. Right, exactly. It's It's not that they have to reveal all their plans, but they need to tell people that Vintage Champs will not be at Gen Con. Yeah. They could have announced that months ago. Without without spoiling any big event, they could have announced at least that. Mm-hmm. They could have announced that in January or December. Agreed completely. And so one positive spin on this whole situation, though, is it appears that they have special plans for Vintage and Legacy Champs this year. 
there's no other reason to move them from Gen Con than you're trying to do something right. special or unique. And it is the 20th anniversary, so it only right. makes sense. We don't know right. how well, grand those plans are yet. Well, we've had a conversation uh, offline about this, but it seems to, to us that there's basically two possibilities. One is that they're going to piggyback the Vintage Legacy Championship on some other event. They'll ride it. Or it'll be a separate standalone event, perhaps to to celebrate or commemorate the 20th anniversary of the game. Mm-hmm. In terms of the first possibility, it seemed the, the one that stood out to me is, is GPDC, which would be timed right because it's towards the end of the year. The details of Grand Prix DC had not yet been posted, which would explain why they haven't announced the details of the Vintage Championship. And it's one of only four Grand Prix whose event listings hadn't as of this podcast not yet been posted. The other possibility is, which we discussed, is that they have a 20th anniversary where they feature both the Vintage and Legacy well, the second seems like a possibility, but the one thing that's, that seems that makes me skeptical of it is the fact that I have a difficult time believing that Vintage Legacy would garner the kind of warm bodies that they would expect or you would get for a Grand Prix. Vintage Championship is at most a couple, you know, 150, 200 to 200 people. Legacy Champs maybe a couple hundred at most. And and when you you don't have it at a larger event like Gen Con or Origins, the number those numbers are probably a little bit smaller. So what kind of you know prize structure would would be sufficiently attractive? to get not just vintage and legacy players, but if you're truly celebrating the 20th anniversary of the game, all players. It would have to be a Grand Prix level type prize structure. And they has, as of yet, not not given that kind of thing to vintage or legacy. Well, Steve, I believe that the prize structure for such an event, Vintage Champs, regardless of where it is, I believe mm-hmm. that it's going to be tied with the release of Power on Magic Online this year. Explain what you mean. I believe that we know that we know a couple of things. One is that they have announced that they will be releasing the Power on Magic Online this year. They have not yet explained how, but when they initially discussed the matter, they mentioned, and we've covered on the show, how they wanted to keep the Power 9 as Magic's quote-unquote royalty. They want to keep it special, at least initially. And I think it only makes sense. They're moving Vintage Champs. They've got Power coming out on Magic Online. They want to keep Magic Online's Power special somehow. I just can't shake the feeling that as part of the 20th anniversary and as part of Vintage Champs and in relation to Magic Online, all of these events are going to coincide in some kind of celebration that involves giving away as prize uh, digital power. But how much value would that have? Is that going to is that going to attract pro tour players who have to book flights, hotels, and travel to a an event that has no cash prize? Uh, well, I didn't say that would be the only prize. I just think that'll be part of the draw. Part of the draw for non-vintage players, per se, that are giving them an opportunity to be some of the first to play vintage online. Now, I haven't thought through this matter fully in terms of how far does that prize go down, um, uh, what kind of additional prizes go with it as you hit on, et cetera, et cetera. But I just can't shake the feeling that these things are they're coming to a close in the second half of this year. There's too many things going on for them to not be related, in my opinion. There are too many threads that have to be wrapped up. Yeah. And it would be nice to wrap them up with a nice little bow. Yep, agreed. So, uh, you know, don't take my word for it. I'm just estimating here. But these things that we know or have been told are going to happen all seem to point to one coinciding event. And I, I, I embrace it. 
I wouldn't want that to be the only prize, as you've hit on. <laughs> also, I don't like the idea of there being only, say, eight sets of this power on Moto initially, if they gave them to just the top eight of the event, for example. That's not a good idea, because that means that nobody on Moto really gets to play vintage. <laughs> just those eight players would get to play with each other. So it has to be a big prize, like every participant in vintage You, you may be well be right. Use the vintage championship or the slash magic and then base power online. But and it comes back to, if you're going to have a you have a true celebration of the game. You need to have a very compelling prize structure that's at least as big as a Grand Prix to get the kind of to get the kind of you know, the, the headcount that would justify that kind of event. Right? The two bullies, right? Of having these two events ride a Grand Prix and be part of the celebration, a separate standalone event. The reason I find the Grand Prix possibility more likely is because the question is what draw what would draw you know more than just a couple hundred people to a 20th anniversary event. It would have to be more than the Vintage, vintage and Legacy Championship, and it would have to be more than Moto Power Online, mm-hmm. I would think. And, and I think such event would have more than that. I believe that such a celebration would have events of number of formats. It would possibly have a, an actual physical overlap with Magic Online, meaning hosting Magic Online tournaments on site, things like that. Things like what you would see at Gen Con, unfortunately, all packed into a shorter time period and focused just on Magic. But I don't know. I'm only I'm only estimating. Yeah. The the other piece of this is so puzzling is Wizards of the Coast is an, is is a company that is expert at event planning, and to have dropped the ball so so badly here is really puzzling to say the least. Yeah. Well, when you think about it again, assuming that the plans are taking, you know, the planned event is taking place, say, in Q4 of this year. Maybe that was their intention all along. Maybe it was their intention all along not to announce anything until the summer. All of that could be true, and they simply did not foresee the backlash of not announcing the, the Gen Con issue. If you take no. that one factor out of the equation, the people who had already planned on Gen Con, then the, all of the rest of this does make some sense. Yeah, and but it, it still doesn't explain the fact that they couldn't simply why they couldn't simply say, by the way, the Vintage and Legacy <laughs> Champs are going to be a Gen Con. Well, that doesn't reveal anything. That's the part. But, that I, I truly, it truly feels to me like a simple oversight, and that's why I was speaking to a lack of connection to the vintage community. They simply did not understand that Vintage Champs is such an important event for this small community. They simply... But it wasn't just, it's not just Vintage you know, players who rely who go to Gen Con to play in a multiplicity of forms. You know, it's not like they're strangers to Gen Con. Magic debuted at Gen Con. Mm-hmm. It's also not as the though there's no magic at Gen Con either. There will still be plenty of vintage tournaments, plenty of legacy tournaments, and some big prize tournaments. In fact, there will be more prizes doled out at Gen Con this year than in any of the years where there were vintage champs and legacy champs. Yes. Well, let's move on to our next announcement. Yeah. So more to come on that as soon as we learn it. Regarding upcoming tournaments, though, we have a number of announcements. Steve, I expect you're pretty excited about the NYSE Power 8 event coming up in June. I'm so excited. Why don't you tell our listeners what it, what it is? So the New York Stack Exchange runs lots of vintage tournaments out of the East Coast, as our audience probably knows by now. But this one is a big deal. It's being named the NYSE Open 1, the first. It's a $100 entry 15 proxy, non-sanctioned, vintage tournament, and the top eight are going to draft basically eight of the power nine, excluding Time Twister. So this is a model very much like the old double power nine tournaments that Star City used to run for vintage, whereby it has the maximal awesome prize for vintage and yes. the maximal draw. Yes. I think that this is going to be the model for vintage tournaments going forward. It's a very pricey entry, $100. But the thing about it is you don't, 
you don't have to have a huge crowd. So you can have 60 players and give away Power 9. You can have 50 players and give away Power 9, you know, sans time twister. Mm -hmm. And so, first of all, I booked my flight because I'm going to be in Columbus the week before, and I thought I might as well just swing swing through New York. And I booked it before, just before we found out that the Vintage Champs was not going to be at Gen Con. Wow. So I was was very delighted that I had made that decision because this is really going to fill that gap. This is going to be, what, what, what's the date of this tournament? June 15th. June 15th. It's only a couple so, weeks away. And anyone can go. You just have to pay $100 and register. Um, and it's Nick Detweiler's tournament. This is actually filling the gap of the Waterbury, too. I have a feeling this will become sort of the American, the new American Waterbury. This will become one of the high-profile, high-prestige vintage tournaments, much like Europe has the Bizarre Moxon and the Doomsday Tournament. I'm really looking forward to this, and it will be it will definitely define the metagame for the summer. And it's going to be a good turnout. Like you said, you don't need to have hundreds of people at this kind of entry fee. But according to the thread on the mana drain, Nick already has 58 players pre-registered. A couple of those will fall out here and there, but you're talking about 58 dedicated members of the Vintage community, including two Vintage champions that will be on site. So, Steve, we'll be looking forward to your tournament report after the fact, and we'll definitely cover the results of that event on the show here. Yes. Next up is Vacaville tournament coming up on June 2nd. Steve, are you planning to attend yes, this one? We have a, another venture. Oh, yeah. And I drive around before I see event. All right. Uh, Vacaville is June 2nd, Sunday, June 2nd, in California. If you live in the Bay, be sure to you live in Sacramento, come on down. It'll be fun. And announcement um, on the membrane, but it's going to be the old of games. And coming up here in Ohio, we have more Team Serious Opens. By the time this show goes up, the, the next one will probably already have happened. It's on May 26th in Columbus. But shortly after that, we have June 22nd in Sandusky. Always a good time, the Team Serious Open. And I plan to be in attendance with a handful of other Michigan players coming down for the Sandusky event in June. Awesome. I look forward to seeing some of our listeners there. I look forward to hearing your tournament report about that. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, it's going to be kind of a rapid-fire series of events here for the next couple of months, what with the NYSE event, and you'll have a lot of information from that, and I'll take that in and use it just a week later in Sandusky. It'll probably be some rapid-fire adjustments to the metagame, especially given the Bazaar of Moxon results, which we're going to cover later. For a format that's used to slow evolution, this is going to be a sprint to the finish this year. Sprint to the vintage championship, I have a feeling. That's right. And hopefully there's not too much time between late June and the vintage championship, but we'll see when we know. Steve, you got some article content coming out now, too? Yeah, by the time this podcast is pub- is broadcast, uh, my latest history of vintage chat, 1999, which is cool because... It saw a record number of restrictions in Type 1. The restricted list basically doubled in size after basically three separate waves of restrictions. And I sort of break down the different waves of restrictions, including an emergency restriction, which you should all read about a fascinating story there. And the last two sets in the Urza's block were and the really curious, enigmatic, you know, doesn't get a lot of credit set, Mercadian Mask. But Kevin, Mercadian Mask is actually a huge set in Type 1 in Vintage. Oh. It's weird because... Go ahead. No, I was going to agree completely. They introduced a lot of alternate casting costs in Mercadian Masks, among other things. Yeah, there's Almost, there's almost 20 alternative casting cost spells in between the gap between alliances and Mercadian Mask. There's only one alternative casting cost spell, really, mm-hmm. which is Spinning Darkness. And, and, and the weird thing is, so in alliances, you have this cycle, right? You have the Force of Will cycle, mm-hmm. and then you get Spinning Darkness. But Mercadian Mask really breaks the mold because it has so many different ways of approaching that alternative casting cost, right? Yeah, you look, so you you look no further than Gush for that. Exactly. You get Gush, which return lands. You get cards that sacrifice lands, like Crash. You get cards like Vine Dryad, which look 
at first glance, like uh, like the Alliance cycle, except it's a creature <laughs> it's a, instead of an instant. That was a breakthrough. Yeah, and then you get cards that are completely different, like Land Grab, which are conditionally free, but in a totally different way. When you put those all together in an eternal format, it really contributes to speeding things up and making for a whole new set of deck construction constraints. Right. You know, just to, to preview a little bit of what we're going to see, Snuff Out, you know, and cards like that are also from that set, which, you know, which are conditioned in totally different ways, which your opponent has to have. You have to have a certain kind of land in play. And you pay a certain amount of life or cards like Submerge, right? Mm-hmm. All of these cards have made big waves in Eternal Decks. Including Massacre, which is still played and I play in, in Legacy. Mm-hmm. So Mercadian Mask is a, is a set that does not get a lot of credit. It's very enigmatic, but it's actually huge. So be sure to check out my article, 1999, where I dig into the Invitational, Magic Invitational. You'll see the, the fight between the top decks and the format, the Academy deck, post-Academy restriction, versus the Necro and Control decks like Keeper and the deck. It's a great narrative. And 2000, Kevin, is I'm almost halfway through it. It's just a gigantic year. It's so cool because in 2000, the format is basically written off by, in the United States. It's it, The format is really defined by the Invitational. Magic Invitational. And there are two Magic Invitationals that year. One before the restriction of the beginning year, before the restriction of Necropotence, and one at the end of year after the restriction of Necropotence. But what's so cool about 2000 is it's really the year that vintage, the vintage community coalesces. It's the year that B Dominia becomes sort of the hub. And it's the year that the Duelman launches. Really, you get 100 person turn consistently in Germany for several years. So vintage just really starts to take off despite the fact that uh, you know people have written it off. Uh, so one other article I'll just mention is a free article on um, Eternal Central that I wrote recently, published recently called Designing for Eternal, where I break down some of the, I think, really productive approaches to designing for Eternal in, in detail with lots of examples. We've got one more quasi-announcement before we dig into the bizarre mocks and results. We've got to talk about You Make the Card, specifically the final two. Let's do it. So let's start with Blood in the Watering Can, which says, at the beginning of each end step, if you've lost life this turn, you may return target creature card from your graveyard to your hand. So you have Raise Dead on tap, in very much similar fashion to, albeit with an easier condition, arguably, to uh, Oath of Ghouls. Yeah, it's Oath of Ghouls, it's Dawn of the Dead, it's, there's a million effects like this. Well, Dawn of the Dead puts the card into your into play. Oath of Ghouls is probably the most apt comparison, and the condition there was if you have more creature cards in your graveyard than an opponent, then you get it back. But Oath of Ghouls was symmetrical. Just like all the Oath cards from Exodus, it applied to all players universally. So whoever had more creatures got their creatures back. So this card... What do you think is the best way to abuse this card in an eternal form, Kevin? In a, uh, to be using utility creatures that go to the graveyard as part of their effect and get better with multiple uses over time. I'm thinking cards with channel, for example, cards with sacrifice abilities like Fairy Macabre or, well, Mog Fanatic, even though that's not a good example, but something especially in vintage like, say, Ingot Chewer is a good example, where you get continued value and it's reliably useful in multiple matchups over time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of creatures that go to the graveyard, like Wild Cantor, Kasali Pride Mage, mm-hmm. and then there are the, the kinds of effects that never figure out from your hand, like you said, like Fairy Macabre, but it doesn't trigger into the end step. So it's really hard to imagine something in vintage, a creature in vintage that you would really get value from a person's turns, as opposed to within one turn. 
Also, let's not forget that this card is going to cost some amount of mana, and you'd have to have a combination of the right creature for the right matchup and this card and, and resolve them both, basically. And you have to be reliably losing life, which is very easy to do in short bursts with fetch lands, but not over the long term. In Legacy, this could be much better. I mean, you could imagine like a rug mirror where you can just recur your guys indefinitely. You just continue to get back your goips and your in your uh, delvers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And all you have to do is activate a fetch land to get it, or receive damage from your opponent's combat. Yeah, or or pay life with Sylvan Library or anything like that. Mm-hmm. That having been said, though, would you main deck this effect in Legacy? Almost certainly not. One other thing. Possibly not, but one other creature that would be pretty good with this is, is Baleful Strix. Also Snapcaster Mage, which dies very readily and, and easily uh, facilitated to killing itself in combat and get extra yeah. value that way. I could imagine playing like one, if this costs like one black, I could see playing like maybe one or two in like a, bu- in like a bug deck. Maybe like you could do Shardless Agent, right? Mm-hmm. Recursion. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I could see playing, I could see playing a, a couple in Legacy. If this costs more than two, I don't think it's playable in Legacy though. Shardless Agent is a good idea because you could also facilitate your own sacrifices using something like Cobalt Therapy. Imagine if Survival of the Fittest was legal still. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, it's worth noting that in Legacy, Entomb is still a common strategy, and you could yeah. set up a, somewhat of a tutor engine using Entomb in Legacy. What's, what's the card that is often used in Reanimator uh, that used to be in the Survival deck? Was it the uh, the Portal card that allowed you to sacrifice it to, return, to put a huge creature into play? You're talking about Loyal Retainers. Yeah, Loyal Retainers. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty abusive use. Yep, that's a good example. You get multiple uses out of it that way. If this costs more than three, I think you can write it off. If it costs one or two, it could be playable. One, I think it could definitely see play in Legacy, although I just don't see it in Vintage. Although, I could very well be wrong. This could be Vintage playable. It's just, you have to you have to get so much value over time. Well, I can think of a few matchups where this could be devastating. For example, if you had Fairy Macabre against Dredge, and this cost a single black mana, you could reliably control the contents of their graveyard. The thing is, we can't underestimate how conditional this is. It's not, and it's got multiple levels of conditionality. You have to be, you have to reach an end step, which is not a given in vintage. <laughs> you have to have lost life turn. But more importantly, you not only have you have resolved it. Fourth, your opponent basically can't have like graveyard or have leyline in play. But most importantly, you not only have a creature in your hand, you have to have gotten it into the graveyard, which is no small thing. I mean, you could easily have a hand with this and. Or even on top of your library, or anywhere near it. Even though you might have like ten creatures in your deck, you could have the legitimate creature deck, and your opponent might, and you might just not have right. You might draw like counter magic, draw on this. Yeah, I, so I just think the conditionality. No, you're completely right. The conditionality does pile up with this card, and it might not be worth it. There are there is only one fairy macabre, in that you can only play four fairy macabre. The list of great anti-dredge cards that have their effect by going to the graveyard also is pretty short after that, and it gets pretty weak. So the scenario I described, while possible, is certainly not reliable post-sideboard. And against a deck like dredge that's very punishing if you don't get excellent tools to fight it, you're much better off having powerful cards that individually take care of addressing them rather than needing help from multiple cards and multiple restrictions. Let's switch gears and talk about the other finalist for You Make the Card, Revenge of the Necromancy. Whenever an opponent discards a creature card, put a 2-2 black zombie creature token onto the battlefield. Whenever an opponent discards a land card, add black black to your mana pool. 
Whenever an opponent discards a non-creature, non-land card, draw a card. I really enjoy how thoroughly and yet interestingly this addresses and hoses uh, your opponent discarding things. I'm immediately reminded of the vintage context where your dredge playing opponent is aggressively discarding all cards of this kind of of these types. So if you can get this in play against dredge very quickly, you will almost certainly get multiple of its triggers every turn. And especially when they discard their dredgers, the two two right. black zombies that this card would give you are pretty effective at fighting their two two black zombies. Although they will almost certainly end up with more than you do. But do you think dredge would actually play this? There's only four discard spells in dredge, unless they play unmasked. No, no, no. I'm referring to dredge's opponents playing this spell. I'm referring oh, to okay. me as a Grixis control player casting this. Again, mm-hmm. assuming it is sufficiently aggressively costed, my opponent goes Bizarre of Baghdad Go, like they do. Yeah. And I announce this. They're almost certainly going to activate Bizarre in response, but then on their upkeep, they activate Bizarre, draw Dredge a little bit, and then discard three Dredgers, and I get three 2-2 two, two black zombies on their first upkeep. And you draw cards. And, and you might draw cards when they discard any anything else, because they're not always going to discard their Dredgers. Obviously, the weakest one here is adding the black mana, because that's almost never going to be at a useful interval for you to abuse it. But still, getting two two black zombies and or drawing cards are both effective ways to eventually help defeat Dredge. So, Steve, I'm obviously going right to the heart of addressing Dredge with this particular card, but obviously it it's, has some use against other decks. It's just that in Vintage, there is not a reliable discard strategy I mean, that occurs multiple times over the course of a game enough to justify this effect. That's because Dredge is the discard deck. <laughs> well, but what I mean is there's no such thing as a deck that plays Hypnotic Specters and Hymn to Turox and Duresses and Thoughtseizes in Vintage such that you're going to be making your opponent discard every turn. That said, yeah. it is possible to abuse this card with draw sevens, a la Windfall, Wheel of Fortune, Whispering Madness, thereby catching your opponent with a handful of miscellaneous cards, almost certainly including land and non-creature, non-land cards. So this costs a cheap amount of mana. You play it on the first turn. On the second turn, you wheel. And as a result of your wheel, you add a handful of black mana to your pool and draw some extra cards. That's really powerful. So yeah. it could beef up draw sevens in a very interesting way. Yeah. I really like the versatility of this card, the way it interacts with so many different effects. I agree. That is definitely to its benefit. And the way its results are abusable in so many different contexts. 2-2 two, two black yeah. zombie, some black mana, draw a card. All of those feed different kinds of uses and engines. Yeah. Also... It's worth noting, and I know this doesn't appeal to you very much, but this is an incredible multiplayer card. Put this into a deck that has any kind of non-targeted mass discard, simple things that make your opponents discard one or two cards, and you get huge benefits. I I feel like it's really hard to predict what the effect of this card will be, but I love the way in which it rewards... It's so traditionally black, rewarding discard, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I I really like and I was trying to design is cards that, that reward discard more... I think are a good effect for black. So I, I really appreciate this card. It's just really hard to extrapolate what its actual effects will be. And you pointed to so many different things. You pointed to anti-dredge technology. You pointed to abusing it with draw sevens. You know, you could. There's all kind of draw seven type effects. You could even just play like thought seizes and things like that and get used out of it. 
And all of that, in my opinion, speaks to its credit. I love that about it. Uh, so what would the, be an appropriate casting cost, do you think, for something like this? Let's ask two questions. What do you think Wizards is likely to, to try and cost this at? And then what do you think? That's the first question. The second question is, what do you think it should be casted at to be eternal playable? So I think the obvious comparison is an M11 card, Liliana's Caress, which was an evolution of the Stronghold card, Megram, but got much better because they lowered the mana cost. Whenever an opponent discards a card, that player loses two life. And it costs two mana. Now, it's a little more direct in harming your opponent, given that it directly affects their life total. But it's obviously not quite as versatile or powerful as the Revenge of the Necromancy can be. Mm-hmm. So I think that two mana is a good starting point for discussing the, the cost of this card. And as an Eternal player, obviously I'm leaning toward less than that, or as little as possible. But given its versatility and abusability in terms of the kind of resources it generates... I would be surprised if they would go any less than two. Oh, yeah. So I think the discussion will probably be between two and three. I think that's right. I think, though, that I would be surprised if this has cost less than three. But I, had, I don't really have a good reason or basis for that. I think for Eternal, it would be great if this is one or two. But I think this is likely to be a three, maybe even a four card. I think your instincts are probably pretty good. I think three, a lot of people will gravitate toward three from a de- development standpoint. But I think some of that is just some historical precedent from other black enchantments that have had to do with discarding. If this was Leyline, this would be awesome. Because then you could put it into play and the the discard player could go like Dark Ritual, Duress him to Torok. And you'd be in business in Legacy. There are plenty of other historical examples like Bottomless Pit, which actually causes discard. Each player's upkeep. Or Chains of Mephistopheles, which we've talked about at length. Or something simple like Gibbering Descent larceny. There's quite a history of black enchantments that interact with discarding by either causing them or profiting from them. But I think it's interesting that Liliana's Caress existed at three mana in Megram for years, for several reprints. And then in M11, they decided that effect needed a power boost. And so it basically lost the colorless mana off of its mana cost. I think that speaks pretty powerfully about their current impressions of how powerful discard enablers should be. And as you know, the history of vintage specters is filled with increasing power on the approximately three mana level with every new generation of a specter having some additional power tacked on, making Hypnotic Specter look a little silly by historical comparison. Yeah. Demir Cutpurse is a good example of that kind of power creep. Sure, sure. So uh, as between the two cards which that are remaining, which card do you think we should people should vote for? I am certainly in favor of Revenge of the Necromancy over Blood in the Watering Can. I don't think it's even close. Revenge of the Necromancy is so far more interesting, more versatile, and also more uncertain in its effect as opposed to just extra raised deads. Yeah, yeah, I think I think both of these have potential applications in Legacy, although their vintage playability is 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 far less clear, but I think that the wild unpredictability of Revenge inclines me towards that card. Mhm. Although there is something to be said for the, if they could aggressively cast blood, then I like the fact that it could be another playable. But I'm with you. I think people should vote for Revenge of the Necromancy. And I I actually don't think the vote's going to be that close. I think Revenge of the Necromancy is going to win by a landslide. Just by looking at the last round of voting, Mm -hmm. you know, Blood in the Watering Can won by 71% over Consuming Contract. And Consuming Contract had a pretty compelling case given the omitted mode, right? The blank mode. Yeah, agreed. There's nothing like, there's nothing like blank to make, make your imagination go, right? (laughs) 
in Revenge of the Necromancy, it had, had a gigantic landslide at 84% over Demonic Bargain. So I have a feeling that Revenge of the Necromancy is going to be the winner, but we'll find out. I think we should spend just a few more moments talking about what we thought were your favorite cards out of the eight. Why don't you go first, Kevin? Well, that's easy. I was on record in a handful of forums right off the bat about Double Down. That's the one that said exile two cards with the same name from Graveyards, colon, draw a card. I thought that card was the best, and I hope, Ethan, if you're listening to this or any other members of R&D, that effect is awesome. Not the effect, draw a card. That ability is awesome. I love this card for a number of reasons. First, it's an awesome anti-dredge card. And in Vintage, I always go right to that. I look for that in my black cards, I know. But it's not a pure hoser, per se. They can still partially execute their plan. But it introduces an awesome sort of cost-benefit analysis for them where they may not actually want to dredge because it might help you more. And I love that aspect of it. Second, it's a build-around card, obviously. It's a Johnny card, which is awesome. Third, it's a graveyard hoser that only hits certain strategies. It's not a holistic elimination like Rest in Peace or Crypt or Spellbomb. It's not a narrowly targeted strike like Cremate or Surgical Extraction. It specifically hurts high-volume graveyard strategies, which is basically what we have in Vintage between Dredge and also Oath. It hits that kind of approach, which I like. Fourth, it's a great multiplayer card. Even in EDH, you can build around it, but also you can just get basic value out of it. Note that it hits basic lands. So if you have even a modicum of milling that hits all your opponents, and you play this down in a three or four or five player game, you're going to be able to draw tons of cards just off basic lands. Never mind all the staples that go into every EDH deck, like Soul Rings and whatnot. You're going to get a lot of value in a multiplayer context. But Anyway, it didn't win. Not a lot of people were very excited about just Exile 2 cards with the same name. I think it's great, and I hope we see it again. Steve, what was your favorite? Well, I can't say that I was particularly struck by any of the cards. I thought some of them were interesting. I thought Mass Mummification reminded me of an Alpha card. It's kind of like crazy, zany card you'd see in Alpha. Mm-hmm. It reminded me, you know, like cards like, like Cyclopean Tomb or Lich. It's just a, a weird, cool card. Definitely has um, that feel. I didn't. I was not a fan of um, was not a fan of Soul Eater Feasters Rising, which seemed completely unplayable. <laughs> I can't say that I was really taken with Double Down like you were. You know, I, I see it has potential, but I just I just think ultimately it's too limited to actually see a terrible amount of play. I think the probably the card that I was most intrigued by overall was Eldritch Rites. Mm. You know, just because of its recursive, powerful ability, you know, it's kind of like a a uh, Snapcaster Mage-like effect. So I really liked Eldritch Rites, but there's no way that card was ever going to be cost at a eternal playable cost. So ultimately, to be to be quite honest, while I probably would have chosen Eldritch Rites out from the outset, I think the most interesting card is ultimately, at least in terms of vintage playability, in le- legacy playability, is probably the one that's going to going to win. So I'm I'm quite pleased with this process. I think Revenge of the Necromancy is definitely cool, and it was probably my second favorite choice after Double Down. So yeah, I'm reasonably I pleased. It was my second favorite choice after uh, after Eldritch Rites, so I'm, I'm pleased as well. Cool. And we can take some consolation in that, in the past, the ideas submitted for this contest were eventually worked into other cards, even the non-winners. So I will not be surprised to see a handful of these effects come out in years to come.
Next, then, let's get to the meat and talk about the Bazaar of Moxon. This event, which took place just a few weekends ago, had 294 players, cementing its position as the largest vintage tournament in the world, annually. Steve, we've got lots of detail. They published lots of videos from the main event and the qualifying event, and we got to watch lots of discrete match coverage and take away lots of lessons, individual plays that we want to discuss, and concepts about the winning decks in general. Where do you want to begin? We're going to start by breaking down the top eight, but we just want to let you know, wherever you found this podcast, we will have links to not only the top so all the archives, so you can go watch the, the matches we're going, to, we're going to discuss as we discuss them. Yes, it's really a nice advancement in the Bazaar of Moxon coverage. They've been doing videos for a while now, but they really are making a lot of material available, which just really forms the model. Like you said, you think the model for vintage tournaments in the U.S. is going to become a lot like the upcoming NYSE event. I think Bazaar of Moxon has really set the bar for coverage of vintage events as well. So we've got the top eight decks from the main event. We'll run down them, and then we'll talk about some details. Why don't you give us a breakdown, Kevin, of what what made top eight? Well, the breakdown is interesting vis-a-vis the winner, but let's talk about the general categories. We've got three mud decks, and we've got basically four control decks, two Grixis, one Bomberman, and one blue-white Stoneforge Landstill deck. But the winner was neither. The winner was a Bugfish deck. (laughs) Which, the finals was fascinating. This Bugfish deck is very interesting. And the second place Mud deck also was very a very unique list that was very well positioned in the metagame, and I think against its top eight opponents. I think we should start with the Bugfish deck. I really, really, really like the Bugfish deck. And I also like the player who played it. I only got to watch one of his matches, but one of the things I really liked about his play is how aggressive he was. I don't mean aggressive in the sense of like attacking aggressively, but in terms of his willingness to play aggressively, like tapping out, making plays to put his opponent off balance as opposed to playing more conservatively. So I thought he, he walked right up to the line that you want to you want to play without being reckless um and, and many of the cards in his deck really facilitated that that style of play but i thought in terms of design kevin this this deck is about as awesome as you get i mean it's got it's the core of the the deck one way of looking at it is the core of the deck is like about 15 counter spells and then the two best invitational creatures <laughs> it's <laughs> dark confidant and four snapcaster mage buffered by fluster storm force of will mental missteps spell pierce and steel sabotage that's right don't forget, too, four Deathrite Shaman. Right. So the other side of this deck is, one side of it looks like rollback. So the But the other side of the deck is this four Deathrite Shaman, four Abrupt Decay, you know, which is just comes straight out of this block, right? Definitely. And again, we continue to observe the just overwhelming presence of Abrupt Decay in the European metagame. And the surprising performance of Deathrite Shaman in view of many players. I mean, Deathrite Shaman just won the, the biggest vintage event of the year. That is a headline. I mean, you know, we had a, quite a debate about Death Ride Shaman, and a debate that was echoed and mirrored across the the, like, the magic community, right? Mm-hmm. Death Ride Shaman had many critics, skeptics, and detractors. I am proud to say that I was, from the outset, not one of those. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that said, I mean, so why don't you just go ahead and fill, fill the rest of this deck list out for our listeners? They get a sense of it. So for, let's talk about the creatures. The Dark Confidants, four of, Snapcaster, and, and Deathrite Shaman are all four ofs. In addition to that, two Trigon Predator, two Scavenging Ooze. The counters Steve mentioned for forces, two flusters, three mental misstep, two spell pierce, two steel sabotage, so a heavy counter component. 
You've got the restricted cards you would expect. Ancestral, Vampiric, Demonic, Brainstorm, and Time Walk. No Yawgmoth's Will. You've got the Acceleration you might expect, Black Lotus and the three Moxen on color. And you have one Null Rod, a tutor target. The land base is what you would expect, mixture of duels and fetches, but it's noteworthy that he has three wastelands, one strip mine, and the last wasteland is in the sideboard. So it's a fair contingent of wasteland effects for a three-color deck like this. And I think that contributed greatly to his victory in the finals matchup, at least. I saw one game featured basically all of his main deck waste effects, (laughs) which really was key. Yeah, I, lo- I love that game. <laughs> I, I know, that was that was excellent. The sideboard, let me flesh out the sideboard. Four Leyline of the Void, one Null Rod, so can go up to two. Four Snuff Out, which I think is fascinating. One Steel Sabotage would put him up to three after sideboard. A Swamp for workshops, a Trigon Predator for workshops, aforementioned Wasteland, and two Yixlid Jailer. So this sideboard is very heavily geared to fight workshops and dredge. In yes. fact, there's very little else that it fights, Null Rod notwithstanding, yeah. than those two archetypes. I mean, it seems like this this deck is just tailor made to wreck the, the vintage metagame. Yep. I mean, the the one thing, the one oddity is that it only has one Null Rod, which is not really explicable. I mean, I don't really make I can't really make sense of that. It's got only three three Moxen, but it, I guess sorry, I take that back. It has another Null Rod in the sideboard, but it, it seems to me like you would. Without critiquing the deck, maybe you want to find room for another. But, I mean, this deck is just chock-packed, full of counter magic. It's hard for a control deck. It's hard for me to imagine how a control deck could easily win, or even on average, win a control, uh, a counter magic battle against this deck. I mean, especially when it's backed up by a four Snapcaster Mage, and I'd say fairly consistent early death, Dark Confidants. I mean, this deck can go turn one Deathrite Shaman, turn two Dark Confidant with counter magic protection, and just go to town, right? Absolutely, and the presence of Deathrite Shaman means that this deck inherently has an advantage in Snapcaster battles. Oh, that's a fascinating point. Your opponent cannot get, generally speaking, cannot get the same value out of their Snapcasters like they can in other matchups, and that's main deck. Yeah, and this deck also has Scavenging Ooze, which does a similar effect. Exactly. And it also hoses Yawgmoth's Will. The one weakness this deck maybe has is, is to Tinker, but it's got two Steel Sabotage, main deck, on top of two Flushes Storm and four Fours. So it has a lot of ways to deal with to deal with it. Um, it doesn't have a demonic. Tu- it does have a demonic tutor and a vamp to find uh, to find those answers. So it's got functionally at least four Steel Sabotage, and then can recur them with Snapcaster Mage. Not to uh-huh. mention, it can probably chump at least one swing of Blightsteel Colossus. Agreed. And one thing to that end that I notice in this deck that we haven't mentioned at all is the lack of Planeswalkers. There is no, not even one Jace the Mind Sculptor in this list, which seems somewhat sacrilegious in the modern blue vintage deck. Nor have we mentioned really the effect of Abrupt Decay times four. There was no oath to be seen in the top eight of the main event or of the, well, there was a combo oath, I should say. There was no control oath to be seen. But in the main event, no Oath made the top eight. Also of note, no Dredge made the top eight. And listeners of this show will recall that Dredge won the last two of this event. So it appears that the European metagame has finally evolved to the point where Dredge can't crack through. And this deck, with its two main deck scavenging ooze, in addition to all the sideboard cards, might be a contributing factor. And four main deck Shaman. Exactly. It seems like a turn one Shaman followed by scavenging ooze may very well be enough to keep Dredge in check. 
from my experience, it is. If you get just the right combination of cards thereafter, it's very difficult for Dredge to overcome that particular start. Not to mention he's got four in deck, and then he has more in the sideboard and all the ley lines and jailer sideboard. That's right. The waste effects contribute very greatly to the pressure that your creature base puts on a Dredge deck. A turn one Deathrite Shaman followed by a Wasteland and a Scavenging Ooze on turn two, that's backbreaking. I fully expect to see this deck, or some variant of it, perform well in the near future. Definitely. I don't think there will be a lot of players that switch to it, but those that do will do well. I think so. I think, like you said, this deck is positioned to basically just crush the vintage metagame. And it's also no slouch against other creature decks. You might say, well, what if I just roll up against this with Tarmogoyce, for example? The counterspells aren't very good, the Deathrite Shaman not very good. You would be surprised how good Scavenging Ooze is against opposing Tarmogoyfs. And also, don't forget this deck has four, fully four snuff-outs in the sideboard. And if you want to try and attack this deck with creatures, be they artifact creatures like Lodestone Golem or Noble Fish-style creatures, Pride Mage and Tarmogoyf, you will find that free snuff-outs combined with four Abrupt Decay and Scavenging Oozes makes for a pretty rough uphill battle. Deathrite Shaman is so good in this deck, but man... You just can't get past the four Snapcaster and four Dark Confidant. Those are two of the best creatures in Vintage. This is not a low-powered deck. This is a high-powered, punch-you-in-the-face tempo deck that, that will be played aggressively. There's no two ways about it. This deck is a force. I agree completely. And and domestic players who haven't experimented with a deck like this should definitely take note. It's not as though Bug is some kind of new invention especially in the States. I mean, it did make top eight at Vintage Champs last year, right. but it was not a list anywhere like this. It was a far more controlling and slow list. Yeah. Well, well and, and usually Bug in the past has always had Tarmogoy. This deck, right. this deck has, there's no creature in this deck that is not a utility creature. Mm-hmm. So this deck does everything. It's extremely versatile. And it's this deck, I don't think I've ever seen a Bug deck. I played against a Bug deck in the top eight of the Vintage Champs in 2011, and it had nowhere near this level of counter magic. That's right. Those decks usually run force and then one other support counter, or maybe five total of some mixture. I can easily imagine being terrified playing into this deck with my Burning Tendrils deck, just because of the, the sheer quantity of, of counter magic, not to mention abrupt decays for my oath. And it's got Trigon Predator, so if it can keep oath off the board in the first two turns, Trigon can really stop the oath strategy thereafter. And scale out my, for stopping Yogg Muscle. Yep, and that one-off Null Rod can come down at a moment's notice thanks to the tutors. Yes. Yep, I agree with you. Anyone who's planning for a major vintage event in the next few months should definitely put this deck together and test it because someone else will, and it's a force to be reckoned with. Oh, and people should pick up four snuff outs for their vintage collection. I have been <laughs> testing. I've been testing snuff out the last year and a half, two years for my vintage Doomsday sideboard because it can reliably fetch out a basic swamp, but that I still couldn't get that deck to reliably be able a be able to use it and beat workshops. This deck is an example of a deck that, against the workshop matchup, starts fetching out black mana immediately. Mm-hmm. It's, it's value in basic swamp, as we saw in the in the uh, in the finals of this event. Snuff out has always been on the periphery of playable in vintage control decks. Thinking about Grixis control, for example, you 
have access to swamps. It's it's not really the problem of finding the swamp. It's that your deck does not want to play a basic swamp. Yes, exactly. And this deck does, which is a huge difference. If you can run your deck reliably off of that first turn basic swamp, then Snuff Out becomes an incredibly reliable answer to turn one Lodestone Golem. Yes, yes. And that makes all the difference in the world. Yes. This, Snuff Out is exactly the kind of card, Kevin, that we would want to talk about in our Ben and Restricted List discussion as an answer to Lodestone Golem, even mm-hmm. on the play. On the draw, rather. Because you can be on the draw, they can go turn on Lodestone, and you can go swamp, fetch out swamp, snuff out. Yep. Just fine. It's essentially force of will. <laughs> it's... <laughs> That's a it, that's a very good point. It, it functions a lot like Force of Will for that first turn Lodestone Golem. And they have very little else that can stop it, aside from two lock pieces or two spheres even, because it's not stopped by Chalice. Exactly. It's not stopped by Tanglewire even. Yes. And it's not stopped. You don't get punished by Wasteland like you do for fetching out an Underground Sea. This is the best anti-workshop work, deck I could imagine building. I mean, and it does it in so many different ways. It does it because it's got the basically the eight Force of Wills <laughs> with the Snuff Out and, and Force. It has also got main deck Steel Sabotages, but it also has these Wastelands. Mm-hmm. Which are just so devastating. And a lot of players would a lot of players would rightly point out that Wasteland is not good at fighting workshops just in the abstract when they are playing these large threats, these these sphere effects, these large creatures, crucible of worlds, never mind that. But if you are the deck playing out the threats, if yes. you have the Deathrite Shaman and you have re- reliable answers to Lodestone or your creatures can fight them, then your Wastelands on them is actually much more backbreaking to them than in any other yes, deck. Right. So it's so well positioned against workshops and not just in part because of that. It's a tempo deck that uses Wasteland so devastatingly. And it's also got Tricon Predator. Mm-hmm. It's accelerated out. But then on top of that, it has Deathrite Shaman, which is a mana generator. And then it's got, for the control matchup, this gigantic density of, of blue counter magic. I don't even know how I fit all these cards in there. <laughs> well, you cut Yogmoth's will and you cut Jace for one. That's how you do it. Yeah, and he also realized that he didn't have to run Tarmogoyf, yeah. which is a pretty big advantage. Why don't we go to the rest of the deck list? The second place deck is also worthy of some similar discussion in its awesomeness. This is a mud deck. But it's not like any of the standard lists you would normally see. It's not like Martello or, or other Forge Master. It's not like Terra Nova. This is a Metalworker deck, but I would refer to this as the biggest mana mud deck you could imagine because, <laughs> because this deck does such amazing things with the amount of mana it gets from Metalworker. No, namely, three Staff of Nin and two Karn Liberated. Note, not Karn Silver Golem, which there are also two of, but Karn Liberated, the Planeswalker, which you can only really reasonably cast off of a Metalworker, even in this deck. This deck tops out with the best high end, which makes it just incredible in the workshop mirrors. If you're in a heavy workshop metagame, you should definitely consider this kind of list because there's just no better way to answer your opponent's workshop type opening with a metal worker into double staff of Nin or a metal worker into Karn Liberated removing their metal worker. It's just these effects. This is definitely the go big or go home school of workshop deck building. Yeah, it only has 16 lands. <laughs> which is incredible. I don't know how he managed. He must have <clears throat> very aggressively mulliganed to Metalworker on a regular basis. Well, one of, yeah, one, I was going to say that it looks very strange. You know, usually workshop decks run 19, maybe even 20 lands. To run 18 or fewer, I think almost every deck that has 18 or fewer has four Metalworker. 
Mm-hmm. So that yeah. your mana is actually not 16 lands, but it's really like 30, 30 mana product producing sources. He also has two expedition maps to find his academy or the workshops. Mm-hmm. And two main deck crucibles to help with the light mana issue, especially in the workshop mirror. Yeah. Main deck crucible is not a sure thing in workshop decks anymore. There was a time when it was, but these days it's hit or miss in terms of whether or not your mud player has crucibles in the main. Yeah, this guy really dominated matchups with Karn Liberated. Once Karn Liberated hit play, he, it just took over. Also of note is, from a metagame standpoint, Forge Master is very popular in the European and the U.S. metagame right now. This deck, by not playing any Forge Masters and by playing a, four full, a full four set of Phyrexian Revoker, gets an advantage in those kind of matchups. Your opponent spends five mana to play a Forge Master, and you spend two mana playing Revoker on Forge Master. You get a big tempo advantage, and you're not hurting yourself at all. In the Workshop Mirror, all things being equal, Forge Master is an incredible threat, and he's not playing Forge Masters, so his Revokers are even better there. What do you make, Kevin, of the Batter Skulls in the sideboard? Batter Skull is a card that I've often tried to shoehorn into Workshop sideboards. I've not played a Workshop deck in a major tournament in, in years, but in testing, I have quickly identified in the past that Batter Skull is amazing against other Workshop decks and against other creature decks. Batter Skull, if you can get a Metalworker down, which like we've said, this deck is highly reliant upon, it's a catch-all answer to creatures, aside from Trigon Predator, unfortunately, but it's amazing against other workshop creatures like Lodestone Golem. It's amazing against removal because, as you can tell, it dodges removal that's targeted. And the life gain means you can just race. It also means that if you find yourself behind on the board, for example, in a workshop matchup or another creature matchup, you can equip some of your otherwise maybe not-so-awesome combat creatures like Metalworker or Revoker and turn them into forces to be reckoned with. So, and again, in a deck that's going to have access to a lot of mana like this one is designed to, Batter Skull puts you over the top in creature matchups and has a lot of utility at card advantage and uh, virtual card advantage over time. We haven't seen a big mana workshop deck like this perform well in, in the United States in a long time. It's re- it's kind of refreshing to see it, and not just one, but a b- bunch of them. Yeah, I agree. I love this kind of variety. I mean, I've always had a soft spot for workshops, and I love the interplay of different workshop builds and how they play off of each other. I would be very wary playing this list, personally. <laughs> In an yes. event, it seems like it puts a lot of its eggs into the metalworker basket. And the workshop mirror. The workshop mirror, your metalworker is a lot less likely to be removed. So then it's just a matter of confidence in aggressive mulliganing. This card, this deck has a lot of cost spells. Like you could easily open that. It has a card silver golem, a card liberated, and then, you know, <laughs> what then? And a metamorph. <laughs> you don't have access to Santa, you're doing nothing. Well, I agree completely, which is why I say I would, another reason why I would have lots of reservations about playing this deck personally. But second place in an event like this means have a couple of good run goods and know how to mulligan with this deck, and it's a force. I think it also illustrates something very important that is often lost sight of. Workshop decks cannot be cabined to a single shell or even a few key shells. In the United States, we're conditioned to think about workshop decks in one of a few limited ways. This deck really just breaks that mold. It illustrates the, the sheer capacity for variety that is inherent even within the limitations of mono-color decks, mono-brown decks. There's so many different internal synergies that you can't ignore big mana cards like Karn Liberator, even Staff of Nin, which I believe we reviewed several years ago and both thought would be vintage playable. Did we not? Definitely. It had to go in the right deck, and this is finally it. Also, I'd like to point out, 
to your point, this deck only differs from what you would refer to as a traditional workshop, like a Forge Master deck. It only differs by a half a dozen cards. But those choices make such a big impact on how it plays out in, in all of its matchups. That's right. I think it's worth noting, Steve, that looking back to last year's Vintage Championships and now this Bazaar of Moxen, the second place deck in both events was a very surprising big mana workshop deck. Blaine's deck from our Vintage Champs last year was nothing like its compatriots and had a serious <laughs> advantage over those decks, I think, for that reason. I think this is a lesson to aspiring workshop players is don't necessarily just play the same old, same old or try to streamline your deck for maximum disruption. You need to consider the big picture, and sometimes the big picture means to play the most expensive Planeswalker you can. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin, there is a curiosity. It says zero Tangle Wire, yet I distinctly recall seeing him Tangle Wire in the video coverage. Yes, you are correct. I don't know why. We must have an error in this deck list. One of these cards isn't in this deck in place of four Tanglewire, as I suspect. Because you're right, he definitely played Tanglewire. In fact, pivotally so in a couple of games. We'll have to get to the bottom of that. I guess that's something... He definitely did have Tanglewire in his deck. Anyway, must just be a typo on the coverage page. So the rest of the top eight for the main event. Third place was Forge Master Mud. This list was... Played by Alexis Cataline and was defeated by the second place player, Antonio. This is a much more, I guess, what you would call standard Forge Master list. Nothing really stands out to me except the, the tutor targets for the Forge Master include Duplicant, Mirror Battle Sphere, Hellkite, Triskelion, Worm Coil Engine. There's a little bit of customization in that package, but not too much that's non-standard otherwise. Yeah, it strikes me in the same way. And I think that, as we've said already, the fact that this deck was fairly standard as a Forge Master deck probably gave Antonio the advantage. He knew how to defeat his more typical Forge Master playing opponents. Exactly. In fourth place was Bomberman. And this is one of a handful of relatively standard Bomberman lists, it looks like, except for three Mana Leak. That's an interesting, unusual <laughs> counterspell choice. Indeed. This list does not have black, so there's no Dark Confidants in here. So it's right. a little it's bit of a throwback, even including the two-factor fictions, which we've discussed on the show in the past. Just one thing I'd like to point out is that um, in Joshua Kohler, who is the guy who's who's won a bunch of Northeast tournaments with the Bomberman, or placed very highly, the last three or four events he played in, he did not have Library of Alexandria main deck. And that is despite the fact that a lot of players claim the library is in there, yet he is so important he doesn't include it. He also runs four Jace. This deck only has three of But this deck also, in addition to, he has two factors. What do you make of that? We've seen that in the past, and I I think it's a head-scratcher. I think it's just for value. I don't know why you would play a factor fiction over the fourth Jace, but I think it's just for value to speed yeah. finding the the key things you want to return with Oriox Salvagers. Yeah. And I can see the value in it. I have not played this deck enough in an event to really speak to preferring to draw one over the other. So I would just leave it as that. That seems like the the only reason. You do see five cards with fact as opposed to only three the turn you play it with Jace. And sometimes that can mean the difference. But anyway, it's a pretty traditional blue-white Bomberman list, even down to the three Aven Mind Sensors. So I think our audience is pretty used to that kind of list at this point. Okay. Moving on, fifth place is another Forge Master Mud list. Very, di- very different, very non-traditional. 
Well, why don't you talk about how that is? Well, he's got Spine of Ishza, which I will, I'm on record as saying I thought would be a playable in my set review. I forget which set. Was it Mirrored and Besieged? Mirrored and Besieged, yeah. Yeah, it was in my set review as a playable. Uh, he's got three Voltaiki, so it's an aggressive uh, Forge Master list that uses Lightning Greaves to try and use Forge Master as quickly as possible. He's got the strange, he has the full, like, Forge Master Tinker Target package. Steel Hell Kite, Sundering Titan, and the unusual addition of Spine of Ishza. But he also has a Singleton Grim Monolith to help accelerate that stuff out, which is, of course, very useful with the, a bunch of Voltaic Keys. And Time Vault. And Time Vault. Which is not a common inclusion, even in a Forge Master list. A lot of Workshop players eschew that combo. But a nice touch, nonetheless. Mm-hmm. And let's not forget Lightsteel Colossus to go with his two Lightning Greaves. Yes, yes, that's right. So this deck is capable of going Metal Worker on turn one, turn two, winning the game. Yep, that could be a pretty reliable play now that you look at the Four workers, four Forge Masters, and three keys. I think one criticism of um, Time Vault is people ask, why wouldn't you just run Staff? When you can, when you don't need an additional component, you can just win immediately, Staff being Staff of Domination. So given the variety of Metalworker decks in this top eight, it's kind of puzzling that none of them have Staff. Not necessarily puzzling, but kind of curious that none of them have Staff. That's a very good point. In fact, it would make a lot of sense in the second plate list, where he is clearly heavily reliant on the mana provided by Metalworker. Uh, Karn Liberated is obviously incredibly powerful when it comes into play, but you have to imagine that some of the games that involved resolving Karn might have been winnable on the spot with the staff. That's right. So, very worth considering, I think. Moving on, 6th and 7th place feature Grixis control lists, both of them featuring 4 Dark Confidants, 3 Snapcaster Mage, 2 or 3 Jace, couple of lightning bolts a little bit of variety in the counter spell packages among spell pierce and spell snare but otherwise pretty straightforward grixis control lists this looks very similar to what won the vintage championship in the united states last fall definitely key vault in each one sensei's divining top in each blight steel colossus in each yep pretty clearly modeled after that vein. And then the 8th place list is a blue-white Stoneforge Mystic Landstill list featuring Batterskull, 3 Jace, 2 Mindbreak Trap main, 3 Spell Snare main, 4 Stoneforge Mystic main. This is a pretty... This is not a common approach to Landstill, but it comes up every now and then, and it's it has its reliability, but has never really made a splash in terms of consistent performance. Yeah, blue... Um I, I, the blue-white Landstill deck actually made top eight at the Doomsday event, the Avino Geddon, and it wasn't it wasn't terribly dissimilar from this. So I mean, one takeaway from this is that that uh, Grixis Control Grixis Control had the most number of representations in top eight too. So despite the claims you might hear out of the Northeast uh, about Bomberman and and uh, Landstill, Grixis Control is still I think top of the control heap. Well represented here, definitely, and very similar lists, which in in and of itself is a comment on how resilient the deck is. If you can have two Grixis control lists like this, make your top eight, and they're not using some breakaway technology to do it, that's, that tells me that the archetype is still very reliable and should be treated as such. That's right. It, it is worth um, mentioning, Kevin, the results of the trial, because the trial was just 100 players fewer than this, and it had uh, almost 200 players. The trial is it, the top eight from the trial is fascinating because it reinforces a couple of the things we've said, but otherwise that top eight looks dramatically different. Yeah, <laughs> and and it's not again not for lack of, uh, of of number of players. I mean, it was eight rounds of Swiss instead of nine, and 180 participants instead of 280, which is incredible for a trial. I mean, 
that, that's that's better than the attendance that we have for Vintage Champs in the States for the main event. How many players did we have at the Vintage Champs last year? Last year, we had 186 players in our event. So it was roughly the same size of this trial. That's <laughs> just unbelievable. I wish we could have trials that size at Gen Con in future years. Well, the cool thing about this is that my Burning Tendrils deck won the trial. He had he had some unusual choices. He had Matt Elias's suggestion to run two repeal, which I'm not a fan of, but I won't I won't criticize here. But the cool thing I liked about the deck list is he has a sideboard grape shot. And why would you use that? In what circumstance? Well, well, first of all, it kind of functions like a balance, I think. You know, if you're burning wishing for grape shot, you're going to be able to at least do two damage to something. So you can probably, if you can just drop a mox or two, you could probably hit two, two, um, two or more um, bears, like a dark confidant or two, and maybe like a, I don't know, a, a Gadok Teague or something. Sure. And it, and it becomes uncounterable unless they have a Fluster Storm. So I really like the Grape Shot. It's also a nice way to efficiently win the game if you're just like way over the top. You know, like you've got Bargain and, you know, um, and you are just drawing a bunch of cards and you don't want to have to actually go through the Yawgmoss Will. So you can just directly get the Grape Shot. I'm not sure if it's actually necessary, but it does seem, it does seem nice to have that as an option. It does seem like a, a pretty good utility card. Every once in a while, balance is not the thing you want. And like you said, it, killing a couple of bears for a, a middling storm count, four, five, six maybe, seems like it would have some good utility yeah. in certain situations. It's, but I think the key thing is when you're mana constrained, right? When right. you don't have to add a burning wish for empty the warrens or tendrils, grape shot seems like a good fill-in. I can see that. Like maybe you've like pondered the rest and you and you see the burning wish, but you only have four mana. Well, then you can just you know burning wish grape shot. Not to mention there are going to be a non-trivial number of times where your opponent has low life. You know. Oh, good point. It makes a non-lethal tendrils a little more attractive if you have access to another burning wish relatively quickly thereafter. Exactly. Oh, also, now that I think about it, certain games where you are attacking with Gristlebrand could be finished with Grape Shot that might not yeah. otherwise. If you're in a desperation, low-life situation and you're attacking with Gristlebrand... That's right. You can just finish them off with the with the um, Grape Shot. Right, where you might not be able to draw a full 14 cards. The second place deck is very interesting. <laughs> it's like a uh, Rix's Control deck, but it's got Deathrite Shamans and Daves jammed in there. Really trying to play the tempo game more so than Grixis Control is used to. Yeah, and he has four, four, four Wastelands, too, I should mention. Yeah, so this is more like, aside from the Lightning Bolts, this is more like just a, a big mana bug list, the likes Except of which... It's a, it's a, it's a R, R-U-G... R, sorry, it doesn't have, <laughs> doesn't have green. Well, it does have one Tropical Island, and it does have Deathrite Shaman, and it does have Ancient Grudge. So yeah. it has a very small component of green. You're right. It doesn't have the Tarmogoyf. So yeah, it's it's guess it's right there in the middle between Grixis Control and Bugfish, trying to straddle the line, still play the tempo game. But ironically, it doesn't have nearly the counterspell count that the quote unquote aggro control deck that we saw earlier did. Two mental misstep, three days. And forces. Before we um, talk about the rest of the top eight deck list, and we'll just run through them quickly, I want to mention there was a very fascinating video of the of the the trial finals between the Burning Tendrils deck and the and this uh, this guy playing this four color Brixis Control with a, a a splash of fish type cards in it. But that video has since been taken down, as were a number of other videos. And when I asked the organizers about it, they, I got multiple replies, all saying that 
there were a number of videos in which people were accused of cheating and they or players were complaining about how individuals played on video. So they took down a number of videos, not just one and not just this one, which is a real shame for a number of reasons. One, because this match was totally fascinating and I wish I'd watched it more closely. I sent it to you before it was taken down, Kevin. But the, the first game, as I recall, um, the, the Tendrils player just resolved an oath and oathed up Gristlebrand and won fairly quickly. Game two, I didn't get to watch, but a lot happened. <laughs> and the uh, control player won. Game three was really fascinating. There were a lot, there was a flurry of plays, but the critical moment was when the tr- Burning Tendrils player had resolved Oath of Druids, but the, um, the control player had got two, uh, two graph diggers cages into play. Which is weird because I'll see the I'm sorry, I'm looking at the side there are no there were two graph diggers cages in play. So the the, the video I watched, um there were two graph diggers cages in play. <laughs> well, well, that's your problem right there. What? <laughs> the cheating. <laughs> <laughs> so that very well may explain that, Kevin. So in any case, the guy had two graph diggers cages in play, couldn't couldn't activate the oath, and um and uh I don't even know how to pronounce this guy's name. Bjorkland? I think so. Bjorkland Rasmus, the the combo player, cast uh show and tell to try and put I'm sorry, he cast Burning Wish for Show and Tell, and he cast Show and Tell, and the control player cast Mana Drain. So he must have had a Gristle Brand in hand already. Well, now that I'm looking at the second place deck doesn't have a Mana Drain. So he must have been playing a different deck. He must have been playing against one of the other players. The guy Mana Drained the, um, he Mana Drained the, uh, the Show and Tell. So he had the Gristle Brand in hand. And then the next turn, his only three lands were two Forbidden Orchards in City of, in the City of Brass. And he had already generated some tokens with the Orchard. And he had like in play maybe like a Mox and a Soul Ring. It's additional mana. Maybe a Chrome Mox, a Soul Ring, and another Mox. He cast and he hesitated for a moment and he cast Necropote. And he couldn't have Necroed for a lot because he, his life probably wasn't that high and his opponent still had Orchard tokens. He gave him two new Orchard tokens. But the Necropotence was just enough to give him the mana he needed to hard cast Gristlebrand next turn and the Gristlebrand carried him to pick. The, uh, the mana drain, yeah, the mana drain was the last card in the control player's hand. He drew a soul ring, which he just played with. So he, I think the deck list may have been misordered here or they, maybe they videoed not the finals, but some other match. Yeah, well, the things you described would appear in the 7th or 8th place deck, so maybe it was not the finals that you watched, or yep. they switched the order of some of these decks. If I could go back and look at the video more closely, I would be able to probably pinpoint which deck it was. But mm-hmm. let's just briefly just mention the other deck list. So the 3rd place deck list is a Grixis Control deck. <clears throat> the the 4th place deck is this very popular Talran Gush deck, which, mm-hmm. which which appears in, which had won the last LCP, is that correct? Yes. With three repeals and two Talorans in the main. Yeah, which is a quick place deck. It's a Turbo Tezzeret deck. Four Tezzerets, three Grim Monolith, and a bunch of keys. But it also has a Notion Thief, which is really cool. Very cool. We're definitely seeing the appearances of Notion Thief that we speculated about. We'll see how many in the long run. It's also noteworthy that this particular Tez list has transformational sideboard into Oath with 3x Runescard Demon. I thought you were going to say uh, transformational um, sideboard into Abrupt Decay, <laughs> <laughs> which it might as well be, because who would expect Abrupt Decay from a Turbo Tesseract? Yeah, those, man, these European players really enjoy their Abrupt Decays. They show up everywhere. Sixth place is a fairly, very standard, sort of hyper-focused workshop deck with Max Spear, Spearage. 
Yeah. It's got the, the four thorn, the four revokers. Heavily aggro focused. The sideboard even features dismembers and precursor golem and razor main mast, of course. So this deck is going in all in on the aggro plan, even in the in the mirror. Yeah. And the seventh place deck is a, well, how would you characterize it? I would call this a Tez deck that's trying to straddle the line between Tez and Grixis control. And there's a lot more control elements like misdirection and it has a lot fewer turbo aspects, meaning it has zero Grim Monoliths. There's a lot of singletons in this deck, and there's no Bobs, and there's only one Jace. It's just really interesting. Yeah, place deck has Mystic, and what looks like four Jace, two Sower on top of four Jace, and three Stoneforge Mystic. Yeah, this is a very controlling Stoneforge-type list. No standstill in this one, so we're not landstill. We're just four Remoras and three Repeals to bounce them. And in the sideboard, no rest in peace. I find that very interesting. I consider white. I consider rest in peace to be one of the primary reasons to play a base blue-white control deck like this. And this player, Martin, didn't play any rest in peace. In fact, <laughs> three cage, four leyline. Very interesting. Two notion thief in the sideboard too. I find this top eight to be almost the polar opposite of the top eight from the main event. Heavy combo emphasis in Burning Tendrils and Talrand Gush. The workshop decks are heavily heavily focused on aggro. Yeah. And then the control decks are not standard lists. We've got a, a Turbo Tez, which is actually pretty standard, but then we've got a Grixis Tez straddling and a blue-white Mystic Remora control deck. It's, it's a very diverse, very diverse top eight. Yeah. From, gush to, from, from combo to gush to control to the very varieties of mud and everything in between. Prelim events tend to be like this, too. Players testing out decks or playing something they know they won't play in the main event. This kind of thing happens at Gen Con as well. Last year, Mike Solly won with Rug Delver in the prelim, for example, and that deck didn't make top eight at all by anyone. Right. So, Steve... You want to talk about some more in-game examples that we observed from these various matches, especially in the top eight of the main event? Why don't we just set up for our listeners first what's available to watch, and maybe they can try and watch as they follow along to our podcast. But um, basically, I remember seeing about seven, maybe even eight, discrete vintage matches archived, and now there are only four. So some number have been taken down. But there's also, if you if you go to day five of the Bizarre Mox, and you can watch the entire day through. And so we know there are at least around one, around two, and around three video matches in that five-hour block. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So you can watch the early matches of the event in one long video, and then you can watch three or four, is it four matches from the finals? Oh, it's only three. Yeah, so there's, there's the quarter match, the quarterfinals, the semifinals, and the finals. Yeah. Which are all been recorded. You should watch. I've only watched round one in the in the, in the, the top eight matches. Okay. Kevin, you've watched round two as well. Yeah, and the finals. We'll just very talk, briefly talk about round one and round two without going into too much detail. Round one was really abysmal to watch <laughs> for a number of reasons. One, the, the guy, it was Hiromichi Atal, which was very cool, playing his standard bug, yeah, standard Bob control deck against a, a stasis player, which would be awesome in concept because he had Ral's Eric, except he had cards that didn't work with his combo, like Undiscovered Paradise which does not, in fact, return to your hand under a stasis, as he was told by the judge at least once, and nonetheless returned it to his hand. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I have a feeling that that player learned of that non-interaction during round one or game one of the tournament. 
And yeah, and I think that was shortly after having done it incorrectly at one point in the early game of game one. He was really destined to not do well in the rest of that round. I just want to I just want to put this out there. The only reason I really bring up round one is because we saw a number of cheats in in one, and I, I hesitate to call it a cheat because I am always willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. But here's here's the thing. First of all, if if the tournament organizer is going to take down video, which I think is a bad idea, period, you shouldn't people cheat. You shouldn't take down the video. You should have it there as a learning experience, right? If you're going to take down video, at least take down the video where people actually cheated, <laughs> not the one not the one where people didn't cheat, uh, and. In this matchup, there were two things that stood out to me. One is that he played, uh, basically on turn two, he played an Undiscovered Paradise, which he used to ice, to play Fire Ice on Hiramichi Atal's Tinkered Blightsteel Colossus. Mm-hmm. He then returned the land to his hand, replayed it, cast Aces, and then cast a third, played a third land after a very long pause. Um, and, and some and there was some ruling discussion in amongst that in which he replayed the land and then played a third land. Yeah, it, and so he played the third land, which Kevin saw as well. So he played he played two lands on turn three. Um, here, Michi didn't catch, and apparently none of the judges caught, and none of the none of the um, popper staff caught. I just think that that's really a problem. And then by the same token, again, I hesitate to use the word cheat, but he played a dark confidant off of a tropical island in the off-color mugs. <laughs> Which was the ruling question that was being discussed while the other player was playing multiple lands on turn three. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, at, at, at best, it was a sloppy game one of the event for these two players. I think the lesson that I think vintage players, first of all, vintage players need to pay attention to what their opponents are doing very closely. Don't don't let them get away with these kinds of plays. It's completely unacceptable to let them play two lands in the turn or, or play a dark confidant off the wrong color. But the broader point is really this. It is to what extent does the coverage staff really understand vintage? When the Bizarre Moxon first launched, vintage was the main event, not legacy. That is no longer the case. I mean, I can accept the fact that legacy is surpassed. Vintage is the most popular eternal format. But for the coverage staff to be fairly, uh, I'm going to be respectful here, not well informed of the format, to be even, they constantly misnamed cards. They didn't understand which cards were being used. They didn't seem to pay attention to a lot of the interactions. But then to be not even observe some of these mistakes, so that the ju- or even the judges, I think it's a big problem. Which means that players really need to be uh, uh, play on their best. I've been playing vintage a lot, and I know you have, Kevin. Have you observed this kind of like game malfunction slash cheating as frequently as it came up in this this event? No, not to this degree. And maybe our sample size is too small, but even in the top eight matches, these are apparently the better players in the room that day. And I was still seeing a lot of apparently minor errors, but things that really should not have been allowed to proceed in a context like that. And they weren't noticed by the announcers, as you said, and they weren't stopped by a table judge. And sometimes they just, the play just proceeded without any notice of these errors. I would just like to call on the terminals or anyone associated with this tournament to put this, the videos that were taken down back up. Look, everyone makes mistakes and maybe some cheaters in the room be able to watch the video. It has educational value, entertainment value, even if it might, might seem embarrassing to some of the judges or maybe even the tournament organizer. I don't think it's that damaging. You should put it back up. We should be able to watch it and players should be able to learn from it at a minimum. Vintage players, I think really the lesson here is have to take responsibility for themselves. I don't think players should go in assuming their opponent's going to cheat or even be quick to accuse their opponents of cheating, but they should very carefully monitor what their opponents do. Don't you think? 
Absolutely. Players should always take ultimate responsibility for that kind of thing. That is what judges are for, but judges aren't at every table, every match, and they're not perfect either. So you should take responsibility, definitely. And this shows you just how, you know, vintage is a complex beast. No one will know it better than you. You need to be, your judges won't know it better than you. They'll know the, the rules better than you, but they won't necessarily be paying attention to a lot of the interactions that you will be paying attention to. Even the coverage staff missed all this stuff. So you, you need to take ultimate responsibility for the lesson I take. And Vintage, similar to Legacy, is filled with cards that exist on margin. These are cards that only exist because they have small, sometimes small, sometimes slight impacts on a game. Sphere of Resistance is a good example. I, I observed a handful of cases in the coverage, players not paying properly under a Sphere of Resistance. This kind of thing is easy to miss, but it's also the whole reason why the card is there. <laughs> so... That's a perfect example of the larger issue. That's right. So with that, let's said, let's let's dive into the the top eight matches. Uh, Kevin, did you want to say anything about round two? Just maybe some brief observations. Round two featured the Italian five color control deck, which they call Keeper. It features Deathrite Shaman and lots of different types of removal, versus the five color Welder Stacks deck, which makes this a pretty unusual matchup stateside, but one that is obviously more common in Europe. And this matchup, especially game one, featured so many interesting decision points because of the unusual cards that were involved. And I don't mean unusual in the sense that these cards are strange or something. It's just that the unusual combinations. For example, Silvok Replica came out of the Five Color Welder Stacks deck. That is a very rare card in Vintage. <laughs> and I mean, it has perfect utility in this deck, don't get me wrong. But it's very unusual. And the control player... You could tell, because it was cast on turn one by the, the workshop player on the draw, and the control player ancestraled in response. No, they had ancestral on turn one, but they sat there and thought long and hard, Alexandra did, and eventually force of will the Silvok replica, because he was trying to set up, and he did so on turn two, Key Vault. <laughs> Well, he played Time Vault. He played Time Vault, and and then he was trying to tinker for Voltaic Key on the next turn. So he forced Silvok Replica because it was going to disrupt the quick Key Vault. But then... <laughs> But then the, the, the stacks player played Goblin Welder. He, he vamped, I mean, for on turn two for Goblin Welder and played it on turn two. And then the players just traded removal. Very interesting interactions. The control player had Ancient Grudge, but the stacks player had Welder online. And then the stacks player played Crucible with access to Strip Mine. And the whole thing devolved into a long, grindy game that eventually ended on turn 12 <laughs> after so much mana denial. But the control player had outs up, up until turn, say, 9 or 10 even. The control player could have won just by drawing, say, Black Lotus or some other combination of accelerants because he ended the game with Tinker in hand. It was just truly fascinating. It was a prime example of the interaction of Goblin Welder, which we don't see a lot these days, but and various removal spells, lots of skill, and you have to believe that if players had chosen a different path very early on, I'm talking turn two or three, if the control player had wielded his ancient grudge slightly differently, or if he had... Not forced the uh, the Silvok replica. Exactly. Or if he'd 
played Tinker. Uh, I'm trying to remember, did he have access to Tinker on turn two? Yes, he did. He chose not to play Tinker on turn two after forcing the Silvok replica. So there's a key decision point after which the game goes very differently. But he was obviously trying to set up for the Tinker next turn to go with Time Vault. Anyway, the point is this game featured all kinds of critical decisions and could have evolved in a lot of different ways. That Italian control deck, especially with its myriad removal, Swords to Plowshares and Ancient Grudge and a number of other things, just makes for so many play decisions that are critical in the format. And then I had to have a laugh because in, in game two, uh, the control player played Deathrite Shaman on turn one, which was awesome. Very good against the Workshop matchup. And the Workshop player played Chains of Mephistopheles on turn one, which the commentators had some hilarious things to say about because it's just Chains of Mephistopheles against the control deck means it cuts off such key lines of play. The control deck's trying to get value out of card advantage through things like Ancestral and Jace. But in this particular game, it had almost no impact because all that happened was on turn two, the control player had access to Tinker in hand, but could but couldn't play it because he had to play a spell bomb first to get out an artifact because he didn't have one otherwise. So he played a spell bomb, and on turn two, the workshop player played Academy and Smokestack, and then Demonic tutored. And actually, I have question marks because I don't know what he tutored for, but end step. The control player plays Nature's Claim on Smokestack, untaps Tinkers for Blightsteel using the spell bomb, and the next turn, Stacks player plays Worm Coil Engine, which on its face would be a fantastic answer to Blightsteel Colossus. It actually, you know, it buys you time and is resilient to removal. The problem is that due to the interaction of Trample with the infect on the Colossus, removal actually does get around the Worm Coil Engine's wall. So all the control player had to do was attack yeah. in Worm Coil Engine blocks. Ancient Grudge on the Worm Coil means all the Trample damage goes over, and that was the end of that game. And I, and I love that game because it featured so many bizarre combinations of cards, like Deathrite versus Chains of Mephistopheles, and he had to tinker away his spell bomb in the face of Smokestack, and the Demonic Tutor was a big question mark. Demonic Tutor could have gotten one of a zillion things, but he still went ahead and tinkered for Blightsteel, and it turns out that Wormcoil Engine was the answer, quote-unquote answer, that uh, was not good enough to win. And then Game 3... <laughs> Game three ended on turn three when the control player had uh, played land go on turn one and then on turn two plays another land soul ring and plays key vault and the uh, workshop player had no answer to it. It looks like the workshop player had no turn one play though. That is another fascinating thing too and in fact I wrote in my notes that the workshop player played city of brass go on turn one and well that play right there is indicative of one of the reasons why five color welder stacks is not very common and powerful these days is because your mana base suffers such that you're going to get hands that just have a one mana producing land on turn one that just does not play all of your two to five casting cost spells. The only reason I can imagine a a workshop player doing that, just keeping a hand that has city go is if they have either vamp ancestral or a bunch of wastelands in their hand. But even then I just can't imagine keeping a hand that does just that. Well, you are correct. And it turns out his turn two play was to play wasteland and tap those two lands for sphere of resistance. So that's not nearly good enough. It is not good enough, but it, it meets loosely meets the description that you you uh, you described. 
He also had, uh, no, I think he drew the Bazaar of Baghdad. He played Bazaar on turn three, but I think he drew it that turn. He had other lands and a smokestack and a couple of other things. I can't remember exactly what was in his hand because I watched him Bazaar into nothing that affected the table. And I don't remember what was there beforehand and what was there during the Bazaar, but uh, it was a desperation play and nothing came up. So for as unsatisfying as Game 3 might sound, it's still actually very emblematic of the general challenges with playing a, a workshop deck, but specific challenges to welder stacks, where your mana base is fighting against you, and you have to really know how to mulligan with a deck like that. I'm not saying that every time you mulligan with that deck, you have to be prepared to defeat Natural Key Vault on turn 2, but the fact remains is that his draw was not good enough to disrupt his opponent. Move on to the, um, the top 8. Okay, so the videos that we have documentation of include the semi uh, sorry, <clears throat> the quarterfinals, Steve, that you took copious notes on. Do you want to talk about how that match went? Yeah, yeah it went to three games. first game was nine turns, and the third game was six turns. They're all fairly brief games that we can just briefly sketch out for you. Lyndon didn't see Mox Emerald Demonic Tutor, and I think I kind of disagree with what he got. You're playing against Mud, right? What do you get? See Emerald Demonic Tutor, what would you get, Kevin? Some kind of artifact removal card like Hercules or Force of Will if I don't have one. And if I'm set up on mana, I might get Ancestor Recall. Yeah, he's got Force of Will. He's got a Hercules. I was really surprised that he went to get Jace. It seems to me you're on the play against workshops, and you plan, you're going to A, expect to get Wasteland, and probably B, worse. <laughs> Jace seems like the last card I would get. I could see getting Tinker before, but he got Jace, and a workshop player did his worst. He played Chalice for zero, and he played Wasteland on this side. Another dual land. Demonic Tutor for Basic Island before I get Jace. <laughs> Like, Black Lotus seems like it would be pretty good, too. And the, the, the control player played Volcanic Island on turn two and passed. And the workshop player, what did he do? He wastelanded the Vulk as well. So he had two Chalice, which is, you know, this is the weakness of playing these control decks without a bunch of basic lands or fetch lands. Mm -hmm. And again, the Demonic Tutor play just a, a ridiculous blunder. So then Linden, on the third land, he plays his Academy. Jeez. Why would you play the Academy first? You know you're locked down by Chalice. Isn't the Vault? I mean, at least the Vault. I mean, you have two lightning. So I would think that you should. I, I don't know that he drew the lands in, but I would think that playing the Academy for the Vault would be better. You'd rather that get weight than the Vault. And he, then on the third turn, the workshop player the workshop, and he played Thorn. At this point, Linden played Force of Will, pitching Jace. <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, because he, he also played EOT and Sustral, which another another force. I don't know at what point he Sustral, but it seemed like he could have played the Sustral before then. Um, maybe he was with the Ancestral when he could force pitching with this card. I don't know. But in any case, on turn four, he had, despite results, had no land drop. So the, the control pilot's been wasting and his facing down a child for zero and has just had to pitch a thorn and then misses a land drop on turn four. That's pretty much a sign the control players probably would you say? I think that you're right. All those factors going together, this game's probably unwinnable for control. Yeah. At that point, uh, Alexis, on his fourth turn, who's the workshop player, is his fourth land, which is the third Wasteland Ugh. at the Academy. Um, but, but actually, yeah, waste, waste, Wasteland the Academy. Then um, Linden, again, no land drop. And the player has Karn, Trike, and Ford, which is interesting because he can play any of them, but he casts Trike, which I thought was kind of... That is curious. That's what it was. <laughs> Why would you choose Trike there? chose trike because it's the fastest you know it, it also could be that given that your opponent has played no land on turn four and five even after resolving ancestral 
it seems that the odds are high that they have force of will, and Trike is the one you want to get forced out of those three. So that's the one you want to bait with? Yeah. That seems, that seems logical. So then the Trike resolve, and then, then top decks a Misty Rainforest, which he plays, uh, and acts with the Trike for four, and he casts Karn's Pitching Spell Snare, so that... that uh, so he theory. he did play Karn on the next turn, and it did get forced. Yes. Yeah, okay, so that's... I guess yeah. that matches what I was setting up. Yes. Um, th- this game is not over. It looks like it's over, but it's not. <laughs> uh, pass uh, does not misses a land drop. Then the workshop acts with the track before, plays Forge Master, which resolves. Um, at this point, though, Linden apparently has found the vamp because he EOT fists up the rainforest for C, and he, he casts what do you think he finds? Purple's Recall. On his main phase, he casts Purple, which he kind of has to do. The mud player has Forge Master, Chalice, and play. So he's going to be able to activate the Forge Master. Right whether he has to do it there, but he does. Purple's there, and all he does is he plays Mana and Max Pearl and passes the turn, which does not seem like a lot, but it's enough, because the next turn, the workshop is Emerald, Sapphire, Trike, and Two-Sphere, but that mana allowed Linden to cast Tinker for Blightsteel Colossus. Wow. Very bad. It looked very bad. For, right, it looked very bad for the workshop player, but he hit top deck, or drew in the last couple turns, Duplicant, which he was able to use. To win. I have to say, while I think I can defend the first casting of Trike to bait out a Force of Will, I can't defend Trike being the one creature you replay after Hercules. Exactly. Not exactly. at all. Either Karn or Forge Master would be superior there. Better. Exactly. Not to mention, I mean, Linden did everything he did could to lose this game by demonic <laughs> for Jace on turn one. Yeah. Not to mention not keeping a hand that had mana resilience. But well, uh, it apparently had at least two, if not three, lands and a mox in it. I mean, and I guess force of will and demonic tutor, right? So yeah. force demonic land 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 emerald. So he basically just DT'd for a blue card, I guess. Yeah. I can't put together what the last card in the hand was, because it probably wasn't yeah. Ancestral, or else he would have played it's, it on two. It's also important to mention, that I should have mentioned this, on turn nine, after Linden had... On turn eight, Linden had uh, cast Circle's Recall. Mm-hmm. On turn nine... Uh, Linden won the Mana Crypt roll to stay at four life, which would which which was kind of important as well. well because Trike was in play, that's why. Exactly. Because the guy was going to play Trike the next turn, so he could yeah. Oh, that okay. I didn't realize his life total was so low, and that from that standpoint, then Trike is a little more defensible. But still, I, I I I agree with you actually. I don't think it was the right play. But anyway, <laughs> I, I think that this it shows how decisive those decisions were. Yeah. Which really shows you how decision making truly does not format. I agree completely. The Demonic Tutor on turn one really turned that game, I think. Yes. And, and not knowing the full contents of that hand, I, I mean, we've speculated about six cards in it at this point. I guess the seventh yeah. card wasn't another blue card if he pitched that Jace to Force of Will. Right. But who knows? Who knows? So game two, game two is 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 much much better. So I'll just highlight it. Linden again uh, play, and he opens with Island Brainstorm, Black Lotus, Soul Ring, and a Pithy Needle on Wasteland. Wow. <laughs> so that's quite that's quite. Um, Linden, uh, the workshop player, all he can do is fear, fear of resistance, which is just pitching force. <laughs> wow. Uh, I don't agree with that. Uh, yeah, I don't. In his hand, actually, the last two cards in his hand, Kevin. I think I think those are the last two cards in his hand because he played Island Brainstorm, Lotus, Soul Ring, Dark Confidant, Pithy Needle. Force, force. Yeah, that's yeah. eight cards. <laughs> Why in the world would you force pitching force on a Sphere of Resistance when you already have Island Soul Ring Bob in play? I completely agree. What are you that's afraid not- of from Sphere of Resistance? Yeah, you have Island and Soul Ring. You're you're really strong. I don't really get that. Once you have that kind of board presence, you should be saving that force for things like Forge Master. 
and your Dark Confidant is going to feed you additional blue cards, so both of your forces are probably going to be good over the course of the next two turns. Right, and the cards that you just brainstormed back, you're going to see both see both of them immediately. Yeah, so, I wonder. So what did he did, what did he play on turn two? He just he just played an underground sea and attacked with Bob. Okay, and so then, C was one of the two cards he put back. Yes. Then the workshop player played another two-sphere, which resolved. Uh, it, at that point, the game kind of got out of control because the workshop, again, the control player revealed a Tarn. But here's the weird thing. He revealed a Tarn, and then he played a Library of Alexandria. Like, you, your opponent, you know, you they know you have a Tarn in, in hand. Why not play the Tarn? You can't actually use the library to draw any cards for a couple of turns. I would think that playing the Tarn would be the right play. And Tarn is waste-proof. Is waste-proof. Yeah. You have an island in play, and that's it. Why not play Tarn? Why play a wastelandable land? I don't know. doesn't matter. So he attacks with, <laughs> he attacks with the Bob. Then the Mud player plays City of Tangle Tanglewire. All of his permanents, except for Soul Ring and Bob, he reveals key. Tarn now. Now he attacks with the Bob for C. He plays, um, he attacks with Bob. Uh, sorry, he plays a second Bob. Um, wow. And the, uh, the player plays City, Ancient Tomb, Forge, Wiggle. Which resolves. You know, it would have been nice to have that force for that. But it has an answer. <laughs> Linden plays another balcony playing God Forge Master. And so it wasn't really all in all that interesting, but there were some questionable plays there. From playing the wrong land on turn three to forcing the, the sphere on turn one, I, I don't agree with either one of those plays. Wow. But having that opening, that I mean, even pitching the force to force, that opening is still pretty indestructible in that matchup. Okay, game three is by far the most interesting, though, and I wanted to talk with you about it. The workshop player opens as follows. Mox Pearl, Mox Ruby, workshop, and then he does some real thinking. And, and by the way, I just wanted to point this out. There are a lot of times in these matches where people really pause for more than a minute. But I think the, the weird thing is there's a lot of times where people are sideboarding, and they take like five, six, even seven minutes to sideboard and shuffle. Yeah, I noticed that same thing, too. There was some pretty generous time taken in between games. So the Workshop player then has three choices. He can play all three of these cards. He can play Chalice for zero, Thorn, and Metalworker. How would you sequence those spells? This is turn... You're on the play on turn one, yeah? Yeah, with Mox Mox Workshop. How do you sequence those three? Well, you're obviously going to play Thorn before Metalworker, and if in order to maximize them, you'd probably play Chalice first. Yeah, I would agree with you. That's not what happened. <laughs> he goes, he goes Metalworker first. <laughs> then chalice at then chalice at zero and then thorn. Well, so that, thorn, that is completely odd. I, that is odd, but it does make sense for one reason. Well, the metalworker is so low power when you've emptied your whole hand. Exactly. Maybe but I, he it, felt it, that the metalworker would draw like a lightning rod, and he would rather have chalice and thorn in play. That's really odd, though. So, Linden plays volcanic island, and then he casts he, he um, plays chewer. He evokes the uh, ingot chewer on the chalice, which okay. is an interesting. Target. Did Go he follow ahead. up with any Moxen? He not. He just passed the turn. Oh, he couldn't have that turn because of the Thorn also. Did he on turn yeah. two, though? Uh, on turn two, Alexis, the um, workshop player, cast Worm Coil Engine, and that's all he did. So he cast Worm Coil Engine. With, okay. he, I think he just like activated Metalworker to reveal Worm Coil Engine and then cast cast it with the shop in the, in the, one of the Moxen. Right. And Linden played Mana Crypt under the, the thorn. thorn, and he and he played Underground Sea, and he had a choice here. He could play Demonic Tutor or Dark Confidant. Which would you play? Turn two, facing down Worm Coil Engine. Boy, 
I don't know. I could go either way. It would have everything to do with the rest of my hand. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, I cast- have, if, if the demonic, if I have, if I'm light on answers to Worm Coil Engine, since he's already played one chewer, I'd probably go with demonic. Yeah, that's a perfectly defensible. I'm not sure which I would do, but he played demonic tutor. It seems seems logical. You could be facing a tangle wire the next turn. Yeah. So he got demonic. Then the workshop player attacked with the Worm Coil Engine and the metal worker. So he did seven damage. Mm-hmm. He played Talarian Academy, Yikes. but he had no, he had no follow up. The control player lost the mana crypt roll, and he drew Brainstorm for the turn. But then he cast Hercules Recall and just passed the turn. This, to me, was clear mistake. Why the would reason- you play Hercules then, as opposed to on your opponent's turn? Well, I think the, that is a very good question. The other question that I can't understand is, why, if you're going to Hercules Recall, why wouldn't you Brainstorm immediately? You have the potential to do something right then and there, right? I mean, you've got in play... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you've got in play, you know, you have a, a land that's unused. You could brainstorm and potentially see something that you could use immediately. You could see land ancestral or some more moxin that are going to come down easier than next turn. Exactly. There is a reason why he played the Hercules immediately, and that's because he could snap cast it back next turn. So he could reuse it. Well, that's so, still viable if you wait to your opponent's turn, though. That's definitely true. Yeah. That, I agree with you. You should probably wait until your opponent's turn. You could at least get more mileage out of it that way, right? Absolutely. I mean, and if you're confident enough, I don't. So you say he had Snapcaster. I might be inclined to even take the Worm Coil hit next turn, and uh, Hercules well, recall life, EOT. His life isn't very high because he's 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 taken seven damage off the mana control. So he's at he's at ten. Okay. Okay. Well, then that's a good reason not to take the Worm Coil hit, but still. Still, you could do it on your opponent's turn. They might play first, and you could respond with Hercules. Well, they're going to be able to replay Chalice at zero and Worm Coil at the very least next turn if you make that play. Chalice at zero was destroyed. Oh, that's gone. Never mind. They're going to be able to replay the Worm Coil then. Right. But the point is they might do something, which you could then respond. You could, you know, something bad to buy a mana. So when you, at least, no chance that when you Hercules them, they wouldn't be able to activate the Metal Worker. Right. And their workshop tapped. Right. In any case, the player just went Ruby Pearl, then played his own mana, Worm Coil Thorn, and the Thorn was met with Spell Snare. So that explained why he didn't play the Brainstorm. But I think I would probably have leaned towards playing Thorn, say. Uh, um, I, I didn't see the, brainstorm, the the Spell Snare in his hand, but I still think Brainstorm better play immediately. But he never he never actually has Brainstorm for several other turns. Linden actually, though, despite all that, found Lotus, which he probably would have found with the blot, with the Brainstorm. He drew it off the top, and it would have been in the brainstorm. That's awesome. Yes, yeah. He he played a Lotus, flashing back Demonic Tutor, which he used to find Tinker. He cast Tinker for Blight Seal Colossus. So he did all of that following turn, which seems remarkable. Wow. So that's Snapcaster, Demonic is 4, plus Tinker is 7. He had Lotus, Mana Crypt, Land, Land, yes. right? Oh, there's 7. Okay, yep, that's it. And then Alexis, but Alexis, of course, had Duplicate. And then Tactical <laughs> Unquote this time, Lyndon played Brainstorm and got chewered the the worm coil, but it didn't really matter because he is too much. Oh, the workshop player attacked with worm coil meta worker and sent Lyndon to three. And then when he metamorphed the worm coil, he metamorphed the worm coil and played Trike and it was game. Oh, that's a lot. And he'd spend his Snapcaster already. Yeah. But there are a lot of interesting plays throughout the entire the entire sequence from beginning to end. Well, Tinker, Tinker for Blightsteel is a gambit. It's a very powerful weapon, but it's also sometimes a liability or not enough to get there. Exactly. has a single point of failure, I would say. Because <laughs> <laughs> we talked about in the last podcast, the fact that the metagame can adapt to it, people still continue to play it. Yeah, I know. It's a good example. It's also, like you said, many examples in that one match of how sequencing matters so much. These decks, just because you have... 
Ancestral Recall and Tinker and Black Lotus and Ingot Chewer. It doesn't mean that these kind of matchups play themselves. It matters yes. a whole lot. The, the next matchup, the semifinals matchup, is I think the most interesting and the most complex. This was incredible. Yeah. So do you, why don't you go through it, Kevin? So Alexis, after coming off of that win that you just described, playing Forge Master Mud, is paired up against Antonio, the eventual second place player, playing the big mana Mud with all the Karns. So at the outset, the, the one observation I just want to interject is that Antonio is clearly advantaged. He's yes. got the big mana. So, so the question is, how can Alexis stay in this? How can he at least make a make a, a run at it? How can, yeah, how can he play to his, to his deck's strengths, little though they may be in this matchup? And the first game was awesome because Antonio, the Karn player, well, I'm, the Karn is kind of unfair, but the, the, the Karn player helps, I think, separate the two of them, was on the play, and he played Workshop Metalworker, which is, in a vacuum, the absolute best thing that you could do, yep. <laughs> barring additional brokenness like Black Lotus. But Alexis had an amazing follow-up, which was Workshop Metalworker, and added to that Chalice for Zero. And I thought that was a very interesting choice because there you could go a couple of different ways with whether or not you play that chalice right there. If your opponent has a couple of moxen in hand, it stands to reason that even with two moxen, he may not have had anything he could have cast for two mana last turn and would was holding them to use with Metalworker for an additional four to six mana on turn two. So in that sense, you're cutting him off of possibly a couple of mana with that chalice play. But the inverse is also true. You're also cutting your own self off of two more mana next turn, and something and changes like that could make all the difference. I don't think it's obviously right or wrong, but I think it's worth noting that Chalice and Metalworker have that kind of interaction, especially in the mirror. Right. So anyway, on turn two, Antonio, who gets to activate his Metalworker first, taps it and reveals one Tangle Wire and two Staff of Nin. Now, Staff of Nin can be totally backbreaking, especially if you get two of them in play. Yes, especially both, because then he could kill the metal worker. Exactly. Metal. But as of now, he only has six mana plus the shop, which is nine. And he has lands in hand, but not another shop to make 12. So he only really has access to nine or ten mana. Nine, ten, or eleven, actually. He doesn't have another shop. Yeah. Right? Or does he have another shop? No, he doesn't have another shop. He has other lands in hand, but they are not workshops. So he can't get to 12 mana this way. And he had no moxen in hand either, ironically. So he has to settle for playing Tangle Wire and Staff of Nin, which is now no slouch, and he has Wasteland for his opponent's first turn workshop. But as he does on turns later and on turn two, he activates Wasteland on his opponent's workshop when he doesn't need to. And I would caution workshop players who play with Tangle Wires to be very mindful of this, especially in workshop mirrors. Your opponent has just played Workshop, Metalworker, Chalice. They have three permanents. You've just played Tanglewire in addition to another threat, and you have a Wasteland. You don't need to Wasteland their shop right there. There is absolutely nothing that they could do with that Workshop on their upkeep prior to tapping it to Tanglewire. And anything they could do with Metalworker is not influenced by your Wasteland. So there is simply no reason to activate it right then. You're much better off having an extra permanent, having extra information. If they played, say, Tolarian Academy on their second turn, you're much better off wasting that. Yeah. So he was definitely premature in activating the Wasteland, especially when you're possibly battling Tangle Wires. You want more permanents. Yes. And the other thing is that Wasteland could actually provide additional mana that you need to cast Staff of Nim next turn. Absolutely. That second it's, staff is, is possibly critical to the way this game plays out. 
Yes. So anyway, on his upkeep, uh, player two and uh, Alexis uh, has no choice but to tap down metalworker shop. I'm sorry, metalworker and chalice. There's no shop anymore. And Alexis has his own wasteland for Antonio's <laughs> shop. So they've traded wastelands on each other's shops under the under the tangle bar now. That was and it was the same the same analysis applies. He has he has four permanents and his tangle bar is going to go down to three. So there was relevant to waste the shop on the on the swing back. Yeah, that's right. It makes sense to do it. He has to wait now to get him down to three permanents so that he won't be able to tap Tangle Wire on turn three. So turn three goes down that way. He taps his board, Staff, Metalworker, Wire, and counters. Yeah. You have to use the Staff EOT, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. He did not, Antonio did not tap Staff of Nin to do a single damage to Alexis at the end of his second turn, which is humorous. So on turn three... Antonio plays Ancient Tomb, he has four cards in hand, and he can't play the second staff, so he has to just pass the turn with Ancient Tomb untapped, at which point the game turns on a very interesting play. Alexis untaps, well he taps down, he untaps, but he plays Workshop and Metamorph, and now the whole game I think hinges on this choice. Agreed. Because... He can choose to top copy Metalworker, giving himself access to another one, possibly getting the tap one next turn. He can give him a Tangle Wire to try and slow the right. opponent down, or he can copy the Staff of Nin, which is a more of a long-term investment, but super powerful. And yes. well, Steve, what's your what's your value judgment? You think of those three targets? Well, I think it's a very very tricky thing. The, the merits of Tangle Wire are you you need if you're um your opponent, you need to keep your opponent off of being like a Karn, a Karn Liberator. So the Tangle Wire, if it works out for you, actually allow you to keep his permanent tap down. If you think you can break out first and play a bunch of permanents, it could end up winning you the game. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. The staff is so powerful, possibly the case that the staff could advantage you in a player. Uh, Metalker, on the other hand, is like the most important card, period. So... Um, so it's really hard for me not to imagine Metalworker. The danger of that is that if your opponent gets a second staff in play, the Metalworkers are going to be all irrelevant anyway. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really sure what I would do. What would you do? I agree with you completely on all accounts. You need to take a look at the Tango Wire play and make an assessment of who is going to get to tap a Metalworker first if you put another Tango yes. Wire in play. Which is really complicated because the one Tango Wire is going to have two counters on it, yep. and then this new one will have four, so you'll be tapping six permanents, then five. <laughs> Well, you're right, but you have to be able to do that math. As a as a Tangle Wire player, you have to be comfortable doing that kind of math and looking forward multiple turns at the possibilities. You, uh, Alexis, the player making the Metamorph choice here, actually had more information than you might at first think. Having seen Antonio's hand on the opening turn and having seen Tangle Wire and two stabs, don't forget that on that second turn with that Metalworker activation, Antonio had six cards in hand when he had, when he made that turn two Metalworker yeah. activation. What does that tell you? It tells you that on turn two, he had yeah. three lands in his hand, and he's only played yeah. two of them since. He's played the Wasteland, and he's played a uh, Ancient Tomb last turn. So you know he has at least one more hand in play, a land in play, and I think that's critical because if you do the math and you copy the Tangle Wire then it works out such that as long as Antonio can make one more permanent on his next turn, he'll get to activate Metalworker first, meaning... You mean Alexis will? will? No, and no, Antonio will. So Alexis is copying Antonio's Tanglewire in theory. Yeah. This is, at this point, if you just work it out two turns ahead, it's basic math. If Antonio has a land or any way to make another permanent, he's going to get to activate Metalworker first, and Alexis knows he has a land in, in hand. 
copying the tangle wire is a tacit allowance of making your opponent have access to their metal worker first. And I have a feeling that Alexis just did not do the math ahead of time. I have a feeling that he was looking at the board state as it was and said, I need to stop him from tackling Metalworker next turn. But unfortunately, he shot himself in the foot. <laughs> he, he set up the exact situation that he was trying to avoid. Right. I mean, because in a sense, he has the advantage here. He has the advantage here. And that if he copies his staff from him, he might, because of a good stop in his Yep. He could break out of this game first. But it's very tricky to make the non-Tangle Wire copy because you are explicitly giving your opponent access to Metalworker next turn. So it's really hard to just make that kind of yeah. assertion when you're playing this matchup and say, you're, you're going to get it first no matter what, I'm going to do the best thing and copy a better card. I think he should have copied either Staff of Nin or Metalworker. I can't exactly answer which because I don't know what was in his hand at this point. I think he had a sphere of resistance, and I don't know what else. Unfortunately for him, Alexis, he chose to copy Tanglewire. Uh-huh. Now, this began a cascade of play mistakes. <laughs> because while Alexis apparently did not <laughs> recognize the future state in that it was giving Antonio first metal worker activation, Antonio also didn't recognize it. So what does Antonio do? He taps down all his permanents on the next turn, and then he plays Strip Mine and activates it on Alexis's workshop, thereby giving up the permanent advantage that Alexis <laughs> had just mistake. given him. And in doing so, he denied himself the permanent he needed next turn to be the first one to activate Metalworker. So he's all tapped down. He stripped the workshop. Alexis is also basically tapped down after you know being stripped. And what does he do? He plays a City of Traitors and a Chalice at 1 just to get more permanence on the board. Chalice at 1 is almost meaningless in this matchup, of course. He can't play it at 0 because he already has 1 at 0. So just in an effort to buy permanence, he plays Chalice at 1. We're going into turn 5 here, and there's still a bunch of counters on Tangle Wires. What does Antonio do with his handful of lands? Because of his activation of Strip Mine on the prior turn, Antonio still has to tap down all of his permanents to the Tangle Wires. He plays another Wasteland, his hand is was actually very full of lands, mind you, and he activates that Wasteland on the City of Traders that Alexis had played the turn before to cast the Chalice, thus still denying him of lands. Alexis taps down three permanents, but thanks to the extra chalice that he played, he gets to be the first one to activate Metalworker. So this is two turns. This is fully two turns <laughs> after the Metamorph play, and thanks to their trading of miscalculations, according to my estimates, Alexis does get rewarded and does get to play activate Metalworker first. Before we reveal what he activated, I just wanted to say the arc of this game is really Metamorph to the activation of Metalworker. And, and, and I mean, I mean both, both players begin the game by playing Metal Warfare, which is so important. They fight to prevent each other from activating it. And then, it, in a sense, it makes it almost looks like if you don't really untease this game and analyze it deeply, <laughs> it makes Alexis's Metamorph play look brilliant. Because it makes it look like his Tangle Wire was calculated to be able to allow him to activate the metal, the metal Worker first. But your analysis illustrates that that's exactly the opposite of the game. It is. So the Metal Worker is tapped, revealing Trike... Sphere, Sphere, Lodestone Golem. A pretty, in my estimation, average 
you know, set of hand contents at this stage in a game. Typical stuff. He plays a trike and a sphere, and he destroys Antonio's metalworker with the trike. Right. That's, big, that, big swing. Yeah, that is a huge, a huge swing. But it's worth noting the quality of the cards that were revealed by Alexis with that metalworker. Lodestone Golem, which is in both decks. Sphere Resistance, which is in both decks. And Trike, which is only in Alexis's deck. So without his metalworker, keep in mind that Antonio has drawn two cards per turn on turns three, four, five, and now six. So he's way ahead on cards thanks to the staff. Yeah. On his turn six, he still only has three permanents. An ancient well, tomb. He only has he only has three now. Right. Because uh, the metal. Well, yeah, not still, but he now he only has three permanents. An ancient tomb because he's been wasting Alexis's lands. A tangle wire now with no counters. Uh, and staff and of a sta- and a staff of nin. <laughs> so he draws two, plays a city of traders, taps ancient tomb, and plays metamorph. <laughs> So now we have another pivotal metamorph play. At this point, there's a pause in the action while Alexis checks with the judge about exactly how metamorph works vis-a-vis coming into play and choosing its copy because he wants to know whether or not he's going to get to know that Antonio chooses trike and respond to it. And the judge confirms that you cannot respond to the metamorph choice. It comes in as that card. I thought he was maybe asking the trike to have a trike with Cal 3. I wasn't sure if he was asking that. He may have been asking that as well. But the result of that conversation was that he chose to kill his own trike with its own counters so that the metamorph would have no opportunity right. to it's copy worth it. Noting that Alexis, it's worth noting that Alexis sat there for a while thinking about whether he should kill his own trike. Now that, again, if, if the copy the trike with the full, then he's going to be able to kill Alexis's surviving metalwork. Exactly. The correct decision to kill the trike really, really important. I think it, you're right. That's pivotal. That's a key decision there. So without access to copying a trike... Antonio chooses to copy Alexis's metalworker. So he's back in the metalworker business, but he has to wait a turn. I want to make one other point. He's back in the metalworker metal business, but it's also worth noting if he copied Staff of Nim in the first place and go out the first metamorph, Alexis would have been able to have a trike there because he could use, he could um, pair the Staff of Nim with the trike to wipe out Antonio's metalworker. Oh, I see. Yes. Long reaching repercussions if he had chosen a different target with his metamorph. Absolutely. Yeah. As, so, so proceed. This is a fast game. So as it stands, Antonio now gets his own metalworker copy. Alexis takes his turn, taps the tangle wire, doesn't have to tap anything else, I don't think. Oh, no, he does have to tap. Nope, just just the tangle wire at this point. He taps Metalworker again, adding six mana, revealing Sphere of Resistance, Lodestone Golem, and a newly drawn Mirror Battle Sphere, which obviously could be huge. Mirror, Mirror Battle Sphere is amazing when you're talking about low permanent counts and trying to finish a, uh, an opponent off. What is he? He only gets six mana though, and keep in mind he has no other lands in play thanks to all the wastelanding that's been done. So he's stuck on six. He plays Lodestone Golem and passes. Can I just say that I think shows the mistake he made of playing the Sphere the previous turn. Antonio would have done nothing differently, and he would have been able to cast me. I think you're completely right. I think that you need to be very careful, especially when you're deploying metal workers, but just in general in the workshop mirror, about how valuable your Sphere effects truly are. It is my estimation that Sphere of Resistance is just about the worst card in your deck in this matchup. Outdone only by Thorn, basically, in utility. Yeah. And you're completely right. Playing that Sphere last turn, 
it may have influenced how Antonio's turn went. I mean, he was only able to play uh, Metamorph. He, he may have been able to play more without the sphere. He would have, would have been able to play it anyways because he had City and Angel. That's four mana. That was the only sphere. In- that's fair. That's completely fair. I, I would say that the sphere had a minor impact there, and it was a minor hedge against certain plays. It would be much more useful as producing two mana this turn. <laughs> So you're, you're right in the outcome. I think you have, literally, you have to look at it from Black's point of view. Is what are my outs? How am I going? This, this guy Antonio has a deck in the game. I have this that I was able to activate order first. How am I going to win this game? And you have the best cards. And Mere Battle Sphere is your best card. Right? Well, keep in mind you didn't have... Playing that sphere, he didn't have in hand, but he needs to account for the, the outs he can... Yep. You know, like Forge, Battle Sphere, etc. I agree completely. Agree completely. As it stands, he's forced to just play Lodestone Golem this turn, leaving Mirror Battle Sphere and Sphere Resistance in hand and pass the turn. At this point, Antonio's Tangle Wire fades away. He draws two cards from the staff again. Mind you, we're on turn seven, and he played that staff on turn two. So he's drawn five extra cards off of it now. (laughs) He activates his Metal Worker slash Metal Metamorph, reveals Black Lotus, Mox Emerald, Karn... That is to say, uh, Silver Golem. Another, the staff number two that's been in his hand the whole time. Chalice, Chalice, Lodestone Golem. 14 mana he gets off of his Metal Worker. It's worth noting that Metal Worker, this guy's been able to play since he played turn one. Yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> he played eight Metal Worker one. So he's been holding. <laughs> So he plays the Karn. He could have removed the Chalice at zero and played Lotus and Emerald. He casts, but he didn't. He, he casts Staff of Nin, going to one mana left, and he taps his lands to play the Lodestone Golem. Completely tapped out. And at this point, he has two staves in. Okay, so he plays Karn first, mm-hmm. and he and he ends up playing Staff of Nim with one mana left. Then he plays, he taps both lands and casts Golem, so he's tapped out entirely. Right. But the other way, the other way to do that is that he could um he could play the Karn, and then he could tap the Karn, use one floating mana to make the ch- Alexis's Terminal Chalice a zero zero creature. Then he could play Black Lotus and Mox Emerald, and then he could do all the same things without having to tap those two lands and take two damage. Um, so he would be reducing Alexis's permanence number of permanence, and he would be um have mana up that way. Actually, it's the same amount of mana because don't forget the sphere of resistance in play. So Emerald doesn't generate oh, that's right. Emerald doesn't generate mana, but he does get plus two mana from playing Lotus. So he could save himself two life from the ancient tomb that play, but it costs him one mana to yeah, do not it. That it really so it's only he only actually nets one additional mana, and he doesn't he still has to tap ancient tomb to make that play. Ultimately, the, so the sphere of resistance is having some impact on the game at that point. But so he plays Karn, Silver Golem. He plays Staff of Nin. He plays Lodestone Golem, and he also plays an ancient ancient tomb sacrificing his city of traders at which point the game becomes a landslide and 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 alexis i'm sorry scoops because alexis only has lodestone golem to face down lodestone golem karn and metal worker and the double staff kills alexis's metal worker thereby cutting him off yeah, of, of mere battle sphere that was the key point the double staff immediately killed metal worker and that pretty much now Play choices notwithstanding, this game definitely, definitely highlights how Antonio's deck is superior in the Workshop Mirror. That turn two Staff of Nin drew him five cards. That's basically, <laughs> that's basically the whole contents, I mean, within reason, that's the contents of the hand that he revealed with Metalworker there on turn seven because of his turn two Staff. And that was, he only got to play one of his two staves on that second turn. 
So it, and I asked, uh, I asked you, Steve, to pay close attention to the quality of cards that Alexis revealed when he tapped Metalworker on turn five. It was Trike, Sphere, Sphere, Lodestone Golem. Those yes. cards are fine cards, but they're not nearly as good as Staff of Nin. Just none of those cards is as good as Staff of Nin in this matchup. And the fact that Antonio had access to one of them was probably the difference in this game, let alone the second one. You're, you're a huge dog. If you're Alexis, you're a huge dog in this matchup. And you have really, you have really, I would say, six cards that really make a difference. You have one trike, you have one, and you have four Forge Master. And he both the trike and the mirror battles here. And he had the opportunity, Alexis had the opportunity to win this game. He did multiple opportunities in the game. Uh, he set things up the right way to try and win it, and it, he just, it just didn't. I think that the pivotal metamorph play was the wrong choice. I think you have to recognize what's going to happen if you to copy the tangle wire and just just steer yourself away from that choice i think you've got to copy the staff or the metal worker and see how it plays out after that and in in your point about the um this, the, i think this illustrates a really important principle about workshop mirror which is you have to look multiple turns ahead you have to intuit some of the tangle wire math and you have to figure that out and you, you pointed out that it's actually it's feasible to do it through some simple logic and deduction and inference about what the opponent's hand did. Mm-hmm. And he miscalculated. Yeah, and at that juncture in the game, he had a lot of information about what was in his opponent's hand. Literally, a couple of the cards, and functionally, the rest. <laughs> so it was not a difficult inference at that point, I don't think. But also, Antonio is not blameless in how that played out either. He also, I think, misjudged the permanent situation and actually gave up initiative in, on the metal workers back to Alexis. And if it wasn't for the fact that Antonio just had superior cards in his deck in general, like the Stabs, uh, he might have he might have given that game away by allowing Alexis to tap his Metalworker first. I, I just want to, for all the people who think that shot themselves or Dredgex play themselves, I'd like, I just point them to this game. The myriad sequencing decisions, the, lot, the, the complex multi-turn math, differences and deductions that can be made to make to make a mathematically optimal plays. I mean, there, there's so much decision-making involved that, you know, especially in the Workshop Mirror, it's just a fascinating map. Definitely. Why don't we turn to game two, which is the final game of the match, which is almost equally interesting. <laughs> well, Alexis is on the play, leads with Shop Crucible. Crucible, obviously, a powerhouse in a matchup like this. It would have been hugely different in game one with all the Wastelands. Antonio follows with an Ancient Tomb, Mox Jet, Metalworker. Obviously, the kind of play that he wants. On turn two, Alexis plays a second Shop and a Steel Hellkite which at face value might seem like a huge threat, 6-6 six, six flyer that can blow up permanents, except that it can't blow up anything other than zeros with <laughs> yeah. with two shops in play. Now, obviously, Alexis could have future land drops, but the simple fact is Metalworker appears to be safe from Steel Hellkite at this juncture. So on turn two, Metalworker taps to reveal Sphere, Sphere, Karn, just six mana, and then... <laughs> <laughs> then the hammer drops because Antonio plays a Mox Jet out of hand. I don't know why he didn't reveal it anyway. For a total of seven mana, playing Karn Liberated. And if you've never played against Karn Liberated, he has disastrous <laughs> effects on a given game. <laughs> <laughs> this is just awesome for type for vintage, right? I mean, this is why people should play. This is a good reason to play vintage. Karn Liberated is is sweet. He is definitely just incredible. Now, I must have miscounted something here because Karn, after exiling the Steel Hellkite using his minus ability... Antonio played a Wasteland and then played a Sphere, so he must have actually gotten 8 mana out of the Metalworker activation. He must have revealed the jet. I think I just typed my notes wrong. But anyway, so he plays Karn, activates him, removing removing Steel Hellkite from the game, 
plays a wasteland and plays Sphere of Resistance. And that brings that brings Karn down to three loyalty, right? That's right. That's right. Karn is not infinite value. He does have to eventually plus, but his plus is still value too. So as this game demonstrates, Alexis is behind the eight ball. He plays Ancient Tomb, <clears throat> plays Ancient Tomb, and casts Metalworker. Now I'm wondering what. He must have drawn that Metalworker this turn, because I can't imagine playing Crucible over Metalworker on turn one and Steel Hellkite over Metalworker on turn two. So I'm really hoping that he drew this Metalworker on turn three. Regardless, he casts Metalworker and passes. Antonio plus fours Karn to exile a Lodestone Golem out of his opponent's hand. Antonio taps his own Metalworker, metal revealing Sphere, Karn, Silver Golem, and Lodestone Golem. For six mana, he plays Karn and Lodestone Golem. So his board is filling up with just unbeatable threats at this point. He's got both versions of Karn in play, a Metalworker and a Lodestone Golem. <laughs> he has both Karns. He has both iterations. <laughs> so, however, that having been said, uh, Alexis gets access to activate Metalworker on the next turn, revealing Relic of Progenitus, Karn, and Worm Coil Engine. I think that was a Relic. I, I couldn't recognize the card. It might have been wrong. I know that he had access to Relic of Progenitus, because I remember seeing an image of it. Get, so he gets six mana, he plays Karn to destroy Antonio's Karn, and he plays Worm Coil Engine. Seems pretty good. It does. Worm Coil Engine is a fine answer to Karn, uh, Sil- or, sorry, Karn Liberated. On his next turn, Antonio exiles Crucible with Karn Liberated, and you might, I think that's- and you might think, why choose Crucible over Worm Coil Engine? But it was because he wanted to get down to the business of wastelanding Alexis's lands. So Karn Liberated's back down to four counters. He taps Metalworker, revealing a wire and a sphere. He plays the Tangle Wire. He wastes a workshop, and that'll force Alexis to tap down that Worm Coil Engine next turn. He's down to only four permanents. Metalworker, two lands, and Worm Coil Engine. So the Tangle Wire is tapping down Alexis's whole board. He taps all four and passes the turn. No land drop, no additional mana. If you were just to look at this, how badly would you say Alexis, Alexis is just toast, or does he have any chance? Honestly, I can't see a way for Alexis to come back from this one. I mean, if Antonio plays his cards right. There's still a sphere in play. Spells cost one more. There's Karn. The worm coil, yeah. I mean, Worm Coil is threatening, but man, it really seems like Antonio has an unbeatable board position. He taps the wire, the sphere, and the mox to the tangle wire. He attacks with the golem, and rather than exile the worm coil, he activates Karn to exile a card in hand. So I thought that was really strange because the Karn had four counters on it. I agree. No, I'm completely with you. I don't know why you wouldn't exile the worm coil engine. That is, that's the one play in this entire game that Antonio made that I just did not understand at all. Or, because the Worm Coil can attack Karn next turn, no matter what. That tramples over, right? Uh, no, it doesn't have trample. It has Death Touch and Life Link, though. So he okay. can still chump if he had a blocker, but he didn't leave any blockers back either. He attacked with Lodestone and tapped his Metalworker and played no more creatures. And also, exiling Worm Coil notwithstanding, he could have exiled another permanent since... Alexis was down to only four permanents. Yeah. Exiling one of them still keeps him completely tapped down to the Tangle Wire at three counters. So he, so he puts Karn up to eight counters instead of just exiling the Worm Coil, which would put it at one. It seems like if you just exile the Worm Coil, this game is basically over. I agree, I and I, I don't know why. I don't know what he was thinking there. But either way, on Alexis's next turn, he taps the two, the two lands and the Metal Worker, leaving uh, Worm Coil up. He attacks for six, but not at Karn. He apparently just attacked Antonio. 
And that was the weirdest. Th- so the both that both those turns did not make any sense to me. And the only thing I can think of is that maybe there was not much time left in the round. But are the are the top eight timed? I don't know. I really don't know how they were handling it. That's but again, that's the only thing I could think of. I could this that he hit was making a concession to the fact that if he didn't win immediately, he wasn't going to win the match. Yeah, it, 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 I may be just making the wrong assumption. I really don't know. But the simple fact is, is this game basically was was really some some odd choices made on turns five and six here. Yes. At any rate, Antonio takes the six damage, takes his turn, taps two permanents, taps the metal worker for a lotus and a worker. Now he chooses to exile the worm coil engine and plays a second metal worker. At this point, Karn has down to five counters, I believe. That sounds right. And Alexis gets another turn. Yeah. And the card has exiled Steel Hellcott's Exable, and it's exiled a Worm Coil Engine. It's exiled five cards if you count the two cards. And you do count those cards. That card has done some serious things. Yeah, three permanents and two cards from hand. So it's it's a five for one right now, that card is. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, this game is still not over, ironically, because Alexis gets another Metalworker activation. And Alexis reveals... Lodestone Golem and Mana Crypt, playing them both, mostly to get permanence out of the Mana Crypt. On Antonio's next turn, he exiles the Golem, cards down to two counters, plays another Metalworker, that's three Metalworkers. And on Alexis's next turn, even though this game looks like it's completely dire, he plays a Forge Master with two other artifacts in Wow. Wow. Now, it was very difficult to follow how the players were planning the next few turns, because ultimately Alexis activates Forge Master in the face of Karn with uh, going up to five counters. No, six counters. In the face of a Karn with six counters, Alexis activates his Forge Master and gets a Mirror Battlesphere. Now, Mirror Battlesphere... Five, five counters. Five counters. Okay, five counters. Mirror Battlesphere is a potent animal, and Antonio has taken some damage, lots of damage from his own tomb this game, so his life total is is in the teens, I believe. Maybe maybe even ten. At this point, the problem is is that the Mirror Battlesphere... Even though it, it represents a fair amount of damage, it can still be chump blocked, and the damage coming from the mirror is just not enough to outrace Karn's power. Yeah. Now, there was another Tangle Wire played by Antonio, which meant that Alexis had to tap down one of his mirror on his upkeep, you know, reducing the power of the, the battle sphere a little bit further. And he got an attack out of the deal, but it wasn't enough to kill Karn thanks to the direct damage, and Antonio got to triple block the battle sphere with a lodestone golem and two metal workers thereby dealing seven damage to it and taking care of that problem so it was it was a kind of a close call in the sense that mere battle sphere was a serious threat for this late in the game after so much advantage from karn liberated but the card advantage was still there and antonio had lodestone and three metal workers with which to just not take a lot of combat damage from the mirror and it just was too little too late for alexis Karn Liberated basically took over that game, although it was still a threat, close threat-laden uh, fight from Alexis. Ultimately, this still demonstrates how superior Antonio's deck is in the Workshop Mirror. His card quality is just so much greater, just because of a couple of choices. Karn, a couple of staves, and his cards are just so much more powerful. Yeah, I, I really loved it, man. Watching this match, it was fascinating reasons, but uh, I, I just people to to um a chance. But I, I there's something about the workshop mirror like that. I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> 
It's very, very tactical magic. With other decks like Grixis Control or Bomberman, you're dealing on the stack a lot. You're dealing with some counter spells. There's lots of one-for-ones. And there's, there's some tactics there in terms of how you manage your mana and cast one casting cost spells and such. The Workshop Mirror, especially, it's like Battlecruiser magic. There's haymakers, and the permanents are so powerful. Yeah. And also, it's very tech, it's very visceral. But there, it really brings into focus. Yes, yes. Elaborate on what you mean. I mean, all most of the action takes place on the battlefield. You see permanents interacting. There's tapping and untapping. There's managing resources. There's <laughs> there's limitations. You get to your turn and it, oh, you might only have this one land and this mox to use, even though it's turn six. <laughs> it's just very resource focused, very satisfying. Decisions matter so much. I mean, like, what do you do with Trike? What do you do with, you know, do you play this card or this card? Do you sequence this card first or this card mm-hmm. first? You know, do you, um, do you, what do you name with Metamorph? Every single one of these decisions is so huge. It, they're almost like epic decisions that then play out over the course of turns. And we've, we've highlighted and been critical of a f- couple of key choices in these matchups, but let's not, let's not, uh, diminish these players. They played all the rest of it very, very intelligently, very tactically, they knew how to manage their resources. Yeah, Kevin, oh, I, they did. A, they re, uh, I think Antonio is, is pretty much a pro. He, I mean, he definitely forgot to activate a staff of Nim. You know, he, he fell into the trap of, of following up with Wasteland when he had Tango Wires keeping those those lands under control. Um, but he, he, I think, definitely deserved to win, both because his deck was designed for the mirror, but he also outplayed Alexis. I think so. And let's also give these players a little credit. This is the semifinals now from a, a whole day's worth of vintage. Yeah, they'd already played like, you know, they probably drew a couple rounds, but they at least played like eight, eight rounds of magic yeah. before this. So this, you're reaching the, the, the home stretch. You're reaching the marathon portions of this event. Kevin, what do you think about the fact that Shahrazad, that, that Karn can be like Shahrazad? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it's a case where in spirit, Shahrazad and Karn have the same effect and therefore you know, they might be treated the same from a ban and restricted standpoint. But functionally speaking, anyone who gets a sub-game out of Karn Liberated really kind of earned it. <laughs> oh, oh, what a, what a cop-out. I, I, I think the number of sub-games played just because Karn Liberated exists is very small, whereas the only purpose for Scheherazade is to pay two mana and play a sub-game. Uh, not the answer I was looking for, but the answer. Not the, not the answer. I, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna blitz through the finals unless you have any other comments on that match, which was fascinating. And by the way, your analysis is very helpful and insightful. I think one of the key the key points is again to underscore the the interactions of the various tangle wires to try and see who's going to be able to activate metalworker first. Yeah. And you, if you're really a really experienced workshop player, I think you can kind of feel that one out. You know, you know how the from pattern recognition how those things unfold, which really I think underscores the importance of experience and skill in this format. This is still, you know, probably one of the most skill intensive formats, and th- these matches really illustrate that. I think. I agree, and unfortunately for Antonio, his deck I don't think really showed up in the finals. I wish, I think, I, I agree, and I wish that the commentators were able to offer the kinds of insights that we've been able to, to illustrate in terms of these games, because Vintage needs it. Vintage deserves it. I mean, there's so much amazing magic to be illustrated by this format that just isn't, isn't the insight just isn't being revealed. I know, and even in games that only last three turns, like one of the ones we covered earlier, there's still so much interplay, and there's still so many key choices that can turn a game like that for one player or the other. With that, here we go. Amadeus versus Antonio, the finals. Game one. 
the bug deck mulligan to six and mud was on the play, which, you know. Sounds terrible. Yeah. Sounds, yeah, it sounds terrible. Mud opens with Tomb, Ancient Tomb, Sapphire, and casts Sphere of Resistance. A pretty typical, pretty typical opening. Not earth shattering. Yeah, the bug player responds with Wasteland and mocks Jet. Interesting that he, he does not Wasteland the Tomb immediately, but he uses the Wasteland as an opportunity to play the mocks Jet. Mm-hmm, that's a key Why choice. I, yes. I think that's an important choice for a number of reasons. What do you, what's the main reason? Well, it kind of depends. Um, I mean, it has everything to do with what's in his hand, of course. If you've got additional threats that are going to get you over the top, uh, then you really need to build up your mana base, especially if those threats include things like Trigon Predator. You're facing down a Sphere of Resistance, so that Trigon Predator right, costs four or more, and if you are building up or you've got a threat like that in your hand right there, that's one of the answers you're counting on. You have to deploy your mana base further. Well, it, it's amazing because if you go Wasteland and you're in Wasteland, you've essentially done what you wanted to do anyways, which was Wasteland on a bear land. So in a sense, you're giving them an opportunity to create tempo on your behalf. And in fact, that's exactly what, what happens. The player plays Strip Mine, and Strip Mine then plays Revoker on the jet. So that, that's the downside, is that he, he was able to revoke the jet. Um, but uh, but it is, in essence, the way something function. I, I agree completely. You're presenting two mana sources, and if your opponent trades you one for one, you're still coming out ahead. So then the bug player on turn two plays Tropical Island. He's, he's only available mana source in play, because now Revoker's on deck. Mm-hmm. And now we'll see how this thing unfolds. The, the mud player has Sphere and Revoker against just a tropical island. The mud player attacks with the Revoker and plays Chalice for one, which seems devastating because that cuts off all, you know, Deathrite Shaman and a lot of the good things that he's going to be able to do on his next turn. The mud player's going to be able to do his next turn. Yep. The mud player plays a Polluted Delta and passes, so now has two lands in play. The mud player, unfortunately, begins missing land drops. So he just attacks with Revoker with the Ancient Tomb and Sapphire in play, it's, and that's it. It's worth noting that after that strip mine on turn two, he cast that Chalice off the, the turn one Ancient Tomb. He missed his land drop on turn three and on turn yeah. four. Yes, and in fact, that's what happens for, the, for both turns um Five, four and five is simply the mud player attacks with neither player playing lands. So at the beginning of turn six, when the mud player attacks and misses the land drop, the bug player is now at 12 life. And on turn six, the 12, the bug player is again misses a land drop just as he did on four, five, and six, four and five and has to discard a dark confidant. on. This is, this, this is this really fascinating game state that often happens in vintage where it's a total parody, right? You don't know what's going to happen. And that's what I love is that it's, it's about design. It's about who, who can design the most outs, about probability. And about key decisions. And at this moment, you know, people say, oh, vintage is so lopsided. This, this sequence right here illustrates how non-lopsided vintage, how, how close and intense these matches can be. So the mud player then breaks out of the, 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 the um, stalemate and plays Talarian Academy, then casts Chalice for two, which is hit person will, which is the knife after he attacks with the uh, Revoker. At this point, the bug player returns in turn by drawing a tropical island. Unfortunately, that doesn't really help at this point in time, of, at least apparently. In the workshop player, then Stone Golem. Go ahead. This tropical island represents the third land for the bug player. There's a sphere of resistance in play and a chalice at one. If he had a two mana card, he could cast it here. But note what he discarded. Dark, dark confidence. <laughs> <laughs> which is very very weird like, that would be like the perfect play here unless he is holding up abrupt decay or something else but um yeah i want to point out though what that information should have given to the mud player you just discarded a dark confidant and then you played your third land so you could play a two mana spell but you don't play a spell on your turn 
I yeah, just, so what do you think that reveals? To me, it reveals your abrupt decay. Yeah, a telegraphed abrupt decay. So the, the mud player plays Lodestone Golem, and in response, the um, the mud player fetches a C and casts Snapcaster Mage, just like a Savannah Lion there with Flash. Right. <laughs> but but it, you raise a good point. I mean, maybe he should have played Bob there, or discarded the Snapcaster Mage and held Bob, because the Bob would have been a better play. He would have gotten an extra card out of it. Yep. In any case, the mud player... Um, draws another land and plays it, underground sea, passes the turn. So at this point, he's got four lands in play, and the uh, workshop player again has um, Chalice at one, Spear Resistance, Revoker on uh, Mox Jet, and he has a Lodestone Golem in play. So there's a lot a lot on the workshop player's side, but it's not over yet. The This is what I think is a very, very critical decision. Mm-hmm. The Mud player makes the decision to attack with Lodestone Golem. The bomb taps all four mana and casts a double block the golem. I love that he construct that play for a second. What do you think, Kevin? He decided to attack with Lodestone but not Revoker. Because he's not interested in trading the Revoker for a Snapcaster Mage. But he's clearly not thinking of double Snapcaster. Even though the mud or the bug player's prior turn was basically a carbon copy of the turn that produced the first Snapcaster Mage. Yeah, exactly. So Which should should prime you for that. I would think so as well. And also if you're planning to play a Staff of Nin this turn, which he apparently is, what does attacking first accomplish for you? Yes. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't cause your opponent to disrupt you. And if you want to draw out that Snapcaster Mage, wouldn't you rather cast the snap the Staff first? Because you can't lose with that play. Either he counters it and doesn't get to cast the Snapcaster, or he doesn't counter it and your Lodestone lives. I don't think there's any case for not playing Staff, staff of Nin first, but let's just chalk that up as a mistake, and then let's hone in on this other issue. So he has three options with respect to what, what to do during combat. Uh-huh. So his opponent's at eight. He can attack with the Lodestone Golem, he can attack with Lodestone Golem and Revoker, or he can attack with nothing, and just try and... There's, there's merits to all of them. Mm-hmm. The reason to do nothing, in my view, is that your opponent is is has four men up and isn't doing something, which means they have something they're going to play, whether it's an Abrupt Decay or another Stabcaster Major or whatever. Mm-hmm. You're it seems to me the reason not to attack with the Lodestone is you don't want it to die. And you, if, as long as you get one more artifact in play, one more lock piece, you can potentially just lock this whole thing up. The life, it seems very tempting to attack because they have eight life. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, the life really doesn't matter. This this matchup is not about life. This matchup is about control of mana resources and, and board state. So it seems to me if you're going to attack, here's the case I'm going to make at least. If you're going to attack with Lodestone Golem, you should attack with Lodestone Golem and Revoker. Here's why. If, you, if you're going to attack with Lodestone Golem, and there is some risk that they can double block by playing a, sec, a second Snapcaster Mage, shouldn't you also want to, if you're trying to just do as much damage as possible, shouldn't you also attack with Revoker in order to maximize your damage? If they block with the, if they block with, if you trade the Snapcaster that's in play with the Revoker, you're going to send them the three life. Mm-hmm. They'll get, they'll have access to the jet, but they'll have a creature next turn below the Lodestone Golem. So the Lodestone Golem kills the creature the following turn, right? Agree. Remember, there's a challenge for one in play. It seems to me you either do nothing, you know, setting aside the staff of in play, you either do nothing or you do both creatures. And if you're just going to attack with Lodestone, then playing staff beforehand is superior. Yeah, but I'm, I'm saying I think that attacking with Lodestone is better than either not attacking at all or attacking with Lodestone. And the three options, it seems like the worst. Yeah, I, well, I agree. I think the, the, the definite plan of action is to play staff of Nin beforehand and then make your choice about whether or not you're going to ping that first Snapcaster and just attack with Lodestone, because I think that's yes. defensible. If you have them on a second Snapcaster in hand, then the ideal play is to staff first, ping the first Snapcaster, and attack with just Lodestone, I think. 
Fair. You don't lose either of your creatures, and you get both rid of, rid of both their snapcasters. Ping, if you ping their, their first snapcaster and haven't played the second one yet, when you attack with Revoker and load them? Uh, no, because then they can still play the second snapcaster and trade with your Revoker. Yeah, and then they go down to three life, and then what do they do? Well, they've gained access to their jet. Just from a purely mana standpoint, I'd prefer to, to leave the least. So, right, so the most they can do is they'll have, if they draw another land, they can have six mana next turn, at most. They can't play Abrupt Equal, and they can't play a Chalice because there's Chalice at one. Then the only card he has left to really fear is Trigon Predator. Lodestone Golem, he has to block with Trigon next turn because he can be light. Yeah, no, I agree. I think you're right. I think you go all in here. I think you play staff first, but I think you go all in. Yeah, and once you get the, once you get the player to three life, the staff can just kill the opponent. Even the low has gone. Yep. Staff of men will just win the game. Yep. Okay, so that was a very interesting turn. Lots of options. One player played a try try on, <laughs> and we passed the turn. Antonio didn't even use staff of men. <laughs> It's becoming an epidemic for him. Yeah. Then the mud player two cards played shop tangle wire tangle wire. Uh, that was almost all she wrote. The bug player tapped out. The mud player drew two metamorph built try attack with bloodstone and and the bug player scoop. So bug player is down one game. Yep. Game two and they brought in a bunch of like uh, snuff out with the sectile sabotage the swamp and probably the third trigon predator sideboarded out like flushers or mental stuff. Yeah, and sadly. Mud mulligans to five on the draw in game two. And the bug player opens the swamp. He doesn't fetch it out. He opens with his sideboard and swamps, and that's all he does. <laughs> and the work like, turn one with Sapphire, Workshop, Jet, Two-Sphere. Um, I actually think, I want to talk about drop he made here. And the question I have for you is, do you think he should have played in terms of playing Shop or Ancient Tomb? He played Shop, and I'm guessing I'm, that he should have played Ancient Tomb, because he has access to five Wasteland effects, which he does plus board. You should play the one that you want to the most, which would be Ancient Tomb. The only reason to play Shop on turn one is if you're going to play another Shop turn and you want to rep this to eight man. Yep which is not what's happening here. <laughs> so I just think Antonio missequenced the land drops, and I think that is a fairly clear tactical mistake that he made. I agree. Especially since he didn't even use the shop. <laughs> so on turn two, the shop player played Tomb, Tanglewire. On turn two, the bug player wasted the turn one shop. Yes. Then turn three, the bug player tapped down to the turn two Tanglewire. Right. The ancient tomb. So it ultimately didn't matter. He wasted both of them. On turn three, the mud player wasteland. He the swamp, so just sat on it. The bug player, on turn four, tapped down to Tanglewire, and he stripped it his wasteland. So the bug player has now played five wasteland effects post four. Three of the five. Wow. All right. So all we've got in play is some moxin, a swamp, and a sphere of resistance. Oh, and a Tanglewire. Yes, the swamp in play. And the workshop player, ha- at this point, absolutely his permanence and plays a mox Emerald. On turn five, unsolved his permanence, which is only the uh, swamp, <laughs> and plays Bayou. Oh, so we've got Bayou, turn five, the mud player taps down one of the shops and passes the turn without doing which allows the bug player, on turn six, to play the fourth wasteland effect, wastelands the shop. <laughs> So by turn six, he played four wastelands. So Antonio, this is turn five. Antonio plays his second workshop of the game. He has access to five mana and says go? Yeah. So he kept a hand that had two mocks in a shop, a sphere of resistance, probably a tangle wire, and an ancient tomb, and, and a wasteland. Yeah, a wasteland. So he was counting on just heavy disruption of his opponent's mana base, but he wasn't counting on his opponent having nothing to do other than waste his own lands. <laughs> Jeez. Exactly. <laughs> so we're on turn six, and players have just lands, and there's a sphere of resistance in play, and, and Tanglewire's down to one counter. We're already past. We're already past the point where digital games are concluded. This game has just barely begun. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so we go into turn six after shop go. Yes. The mud player, yeah, turn six, the, then the mud player plays the wasteland, wasteland the shop. The but wasn't, hold on, plays another wasteland? zero, does nothing. It's the fourth one. He's, got, he's done waste, waste, strip, waste. Wow. Okay. He played four of his five with the first, in the first six turns. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> the mud player's tangle wire is now zero, and he just does nothing, which brings seven, which is where something actually happened this game. <laughs> the bug player had to play a swamp and a bomb. On turn seven, the bug player plays a fetch land and fetches out Tropical Island, recall that you would play, and he uses all of those to tap down the scavenging ooze, which the coverage folks kept calling necrotic ooze with a French accent. <laughs> <laughs> Not necrotic so, ooze. So scavenging ooze has now, has now hit play, which is the first creature to actually hit play it's now that it's turn seven. <laughs> the mud player... Um, recall has three Moxen in play and a Sphere, and the Tangle Wire goes away, but casts Revoker on Scavenging Ooze. Okay. So they're both now, they both have two two power creatures. <laughs> what what will happen next? Well, <laughs> this is where this is where turn eight happens, and Bug Player's Abrupt Decay on Revoker shows up. Abrupt Decay hits Revoker with a three mana, and he attacks with Scavenging Ooze, sending the Shot Player to 16. Shot Player on turn eight again goes shop go wow very very you know weird wow um, on his end step though on the mud player's end step the bug player fetches out a land and he um activates ooze removing revoker so the now the ooze is a three three so the bug player untaps attacks with ooze for three and passes the turn the mud player plays Another shop, I believe this is the third. Yeah, this is that's the third, the third one. Shop, the third shop of the game, and just passes the turn. So on turn ten, the bug player plays abrupt decay on the on the sphere of resistance, casts ancestral recall, attacks with a three three ooze, plays trigon, plays lotus, trigon predator, time walk, and that's game. That was actually the fourth shop. Antonio played shops on yeah. turn one, five, eight, and nine, eight and, <laughs> and ended the game with fully nine mana in play and just said go. Nothing. Nothing. He must yeah. have only drawn lands after the sphere and the tangle wire that game. Absolutely fascinating. It's also fascinating because it's it's all that the bug player drew four of the five wasteland effects. So. <laughs> wow. There there were two strip binds and one, two, three, it, it, three wastelands used that game. Jeez, and all four workshops. Which brings us to the decisive game three. You know, I, I just want to point out one thing. That game obviously was crazy anomalous. I mean, that's just going to happen one in a million. But it does demonstrate, <laughs> at some to some degree, it does demonstrate the value of boarding in lands against mud. Absolutely. No matter how strange things get, you want to not miss your land drops in this matchup. This this goes back to something that we said a long time ago, which is that it is there's nothing wrong with having lands on your side. Yeah. Your sideboard, and in fact, the bug player had two lands in his sideboard. He had the fourth wasteland and the basic swamp. Yep, and they both come in in this matchup. The bug player really, I think, uses his 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 sideboard as if just an extension of his deck to really modify and tweak his deck. Mm-hmm. There's nothing revolu- There's nothing truly transformative there. It's just improvements all around. It's it's a really well integrated deck and sideboard. Agreed. This guy put a lot of time into designing his deck and sideboard and tuning it. Ma- massive kudos, this guy. Most vintage decks. I would argue that most vintage decks should have lands in their sideboards. I totally for, agree. I mean, for my, a variety my, of reasons. My combo, deck, my combo deck has lots of lands in the sideboard. Yep. Three. Don't you have three in your latest list? 
four, four or three, depending on which list. Yeah, and yeah, aspiring vintage players who might not be familiar with sideboarding or or why certain cards are included, lands should not be frowned upon in your sideboard. They are very important. And lands aren't in lands in, in vintage aren't just for workshops. There's tactical lands mm-hmm. like there's you know Cavern of Souls or Bazaju or things or like that. Orchards. Yeah, orchards. Uh-huh. Library sometimes in the sideboard. They serve a lot of different purposes. Let's let's go to the last game now because it's it's uh it's punctuated by a very funny. This moment. game, yeah, has a fiery conclusion. I love it. <laughs> okay, so the mud player is on the play. Which you know, one of the key things that we've learned and criticized mud mud for is that mud has a dis compared to any other deck in the format. It has a by far disproportionate advantage being on the play, and that's one of the reasons that we've said that lodestone golem is is potentially problematic because there's no other is is many games like tinker for for blights to colossus or omens or Necropones. Between all of those plays and lodestone golem, the lodestone golem protects itself. It prevents the opponent from doing anything thing about it, and that you can just sequence spells after it, it can actually be dealt with, creating time walks, tempo plays every turn. Let's see what happens here. The mother opens with Mox Pearl, Chalice of Zero, Ancient Tomb Go. Kind of disappointing opening. You at least want to open with a sphere effect, don't you? The bug player only has four zero cast and cost artifacts. Ch- yeah, Chalice of Zero is not maximized in this matchup. Exciting to play here. In fact, it's arguable as to whether or not you even play the Chalice for Zero in this context. Don't you think you play it at one? Don't you think Deathrite Shaman is much worse than a Mox for, from them? If he had had a Sphere, I would play Chalice at Zero. Yeah. But since he doesn't have a Sphere, I would play Chalice at one. Agree. Because not only does he have Deathrite Shamans, but he also has Steel Sabaton. Yep, definitely. Times three close board. Times three and Spell Pierce. Definitely. I definitely think he would have benefited by playing Chalice 1. So I, I think that's a mistake. On he has part. far more and more important one casting cost spells, yep. The bug player opens with the kind of puzzling underground sea go. That's it. Okay. <laughs> Which to me signals a counter, but we'll see. The mud player plays Tangle Wire. Explains maybe why he kept the hand. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it does synergize with Chalice at zero a little bit. Yeah, but I, in any case, I still would have played the one, but I, even with Tangle Wire. Agreed. But in any case, he, it doesn't seem like the mud, I don't think the mud player has another land. He just plays Tangle Wire and passes the turn. Is that right? Yeah. You didn't notate another land here. No. So, in, but on the turn, two, second turn end step, the bug player casts an Empire Tutor off the underground seat and gets the predictable recall. Mm-hmm. The bug player casts down to the Tangle Wire, drawing the ancestral tropical island and passes the turn. The mud player does nothing on turn. This is just incredible. Nothing. He kept a three mana hand that had chalice at zero and, and a tangle wire and was just banking on drawing extra mana sources. I just do not understand why he kept his hand. Not saying he would have won the game, but it seems like his hand is just going. So yeah, the 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 uh, on the mud player's end step can suffer recall, and the mud player under the wire apparently casts snap right, without flashing anything just to get a permanent. It's a good way to fight tangle wire. Yep. So that's a really aggressive, aggressive play. I mean, instead of sitting back and maximizing the mage, he just got a permanent play when he had an opportunity. You know, on some other circumstances, I really like that kind. Of I thing. agree. I wouldn't describe it necessarily as irresponsible or overly aggressive here, though. Keep in mind, he's on the draw and he's resolved ancestral, so he's got lots of cards in hand. He can afford to spend yeah. a snapcaster mage for very little value comparatively because he's got a grip full of cards. <laughs> And no apparent threat. There's a fine line between, yeah, there's a fine line between irresponsible, aggressive, or reckless and aggressive. (laughs) 
I think I think this walks right up to that one. I love. It. <laughs> so he plays Misty for us and passes the turn. The, uh, the mud player taps two this time and is so lucky to draw a Tarian Academy. Wow! <laughs> so he taps the academy and he um, so he taps it for let's see, Chalice for zero, Tangle wires in play, and a mox, and mox pulls in play. So he taps it for three and he taps the the ancient tomb. So he generates five mana. No, it's six. It's got a mox pearl. Sorry, he taps the, the pearl as well, and he casts Staff of Nin. So he must have kept the hand that was like Staff of Nin, <laughs> Chalice, Tomb, Tangle Wire. No other man. Sounds like it. He's lucky to draw that. The player uh, is able to spell pierce the Staff of Nin. What? So I, I think he basically probably had spell pierce from the beginning. Yeah, very possibly. Steve, what do you think about spell pierce being in on the draw in game three against Mud? Well, I think it's clear he sideboard out the out five cards at least. And he brought in, I would guess, for those five cards, one seal sabotage, one swamp, one trigon putter, one wasteland. That's he probably brought in the four snuff outs, so I don't know what other three cards. I don't know either, but I don't like spell pierce here over other cuts. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. I would probably. I'm not sure spell pierce is better than anything else you have. It's arguable that abrupt decay and spell pierce are sort of similar in some respect. Uh, that but that having been said, though, keep in mind the deck he's playing against. Three Staff of Nin, two Karn Liberated. It might be that Spell Pierce has a little more utility against this specific mud deck with its big mana non-creature big spells. Because if your opponent gets Metalwork around yeah. on the field and, and taps something like six or eight for a, a Karn Liberated, Spell Pierce might be your only answer. Yeah, if you can keep a metal worker off the table. Oh, that's a good point. If you keep metal worker in check, which this deck, this bug deck does very well, then the uh, the Karn Liberate is almost never going to come into play. So, moving forward, he spell pierced the staff, and then on his upkeep, he last time washing back ancestral. He has three mana now, right? Yeah. Yeah, and he taps one cards of Mox Jet because it's a challenge. So he's up to four lands to play now. On turn five, the Mud player taps the yes. On turn five, the Mud taps one, and he plays a Tangle Wire and a Two Seer off the Academy, both of which result. So it looks like the Workshop player is kind of getting back in the game. So, okay, so his opening hand probably had, or possibly had, multiple Spheres and or multiple Tangle Wires. It might have been yeah, I think, I, Tomb Jet Chalice, Sphere, Sphere, Wire, Wire, or something like that. Yeah, I, I would guess it's probably something like, like we're just killing, of course, Pearl, Tomb, Chalice, Tangle Wire, Tangle Wire, Staff of Nin. Yeah. Thing like something that. like that, which would explain why <laughs> on turns three and four, he didn't play additional Sphere or Tangle Wire necessarily, because he was hurting himself too much. Yeah. Um, so we're now. Um, so, but the, the Mud player is back in this. The Bug player on his upkeep plays Abrupt Decay on the Two Seer, which is devastating. And then plays a fetch land, going to 17, plays Finding Bayou and casts Deathrite Shaman. Oh, what a backbreaking turn. Yes. Just when you think you're getting back in the game. <laughs> so now he has five lands, double Snapcaster, Deathrite. Jeez. Yes. <laughs> and a full grip. The Mud player taps three to his own Tangle Wire. He really needed that sphere in play. Yeah. Pass Revoker on Shaman, which resolves. Another Revoker, and I think he named Ooze, even though there's no Ooze in play. Yeah. So, I mean, you can imagine that if um, if that Sphere would have been in play, then he would have a bunch of permanents, including these both Revokers. And here's where things get really equally funny. Huh. On the Bug Player's upkeep, and again, this is an example of being willing to tap down aggressively, he double decays both Revokers. Jeez. Jeez. <laughs> this instant speed removal that this deck is filled with is really shining in this Tanglewire situation. Yes. 
it really felt right. And it's like he's just able to. And the the funny thing is, remember how we criticized Abrupt Decay for not being good against workshops? Yet this is the third one he's played. Well, it's not good against Lodestone Golem, that's for sure. But against yeah. Spheres and Revokers, it, it shines. Yeah. And you don't have to remove Tangle Wires if you're destroying their other permanents under the Tangle Wires still. So this brings us to turn seven. The Mud player is a, is a pretty important they're going to try and survive this at all. The mod player has two to tangle wire by soaring another revoke, Jeez. naming Deathrite Shaman again. His big play staff of Nid, which is forced. So the uh. the um, I think that the uh, the bug player showed some discipline waiting to, to force the staff of Nid. Um, the bug player and two again to the tangle wire wasteland the enemy attacked with both held back the Deathrite Shaman, I think. And this was basically the game. On turn 8, the Mud Player tapped down 1, played a third Wire, passed the turn. The Mud Player tapped 5. There was no... The Workshop Player just to block with the with the single Revoker. The, the Mud Player tapped 3, played Metal Worker. So Mud has two blockers now for... The Mud Player has two blockers and is at 8 life. No. And this is where things get... No, he's, sorry. he's two blockers and he's at 3, because he took 5 the prior turn. Oh, sorry. So he can block and survive with the ball, tap 3, and cast double Snuff Out. A metal worker over oh. attacks with double double snuff out <laughs> to, to win the bazaar of Moxon. I think this is an incredible this is an incredible lesson in how to tactically fight these workshop decks because this game featured how many tangle wires? Three tangle wires. In fact, the turn that he won, yes. he tapped three to tangle wire. <laughs> I mean, the turn that Amadeus won this event, <laughs> he tapped three permanents to Tanglewire, played two spells, and attacked with three creatures. <laughs> that pretty much sums it up right he there. He played around Tanglewire. Basically, he used his upkeep as a main phase. Right. He's flashing in creatures. He's playing removal spells on his upkeep. He's abusing <laughs> Tanglewire, his opponent's Tanglewires, more than his opponent is. <laughs> It's really impressive. <laughs> it really is. This the, the abrupt decays. I still feel like they're going to be a liability occasionally when you're facing down a lodestone golem. But if you've got the steel sabotage and the force of wills to address the lodestone golem, then abrupt decay goes up way in value when you're trying to eliminate things like revoker, yeah, and metalworker, of course. What a classic finals! Um, I, I love this. Nothing I will play it, but I think it's a, a great for players to look at. It's got so much good tech. You know, you and I have privately talked about stuff out a lot. It's great to see it in a, in a vintage first place deck. It's a player tournament. I wish I just wish Kevin that people would not win vintage and give it more credit for being a entertaining format. I mean, these these videos show a format that is entertaining and highly interactive and decision intense. I just want to, I just think that these matches should open eyes to how awesome this one is. And it's every bit as good as the legacy events that have become so popular both in Europe and the States. Yeah. It really bothers me that people that, that Wizards and even the larger Magic Vintage is such a Marlowe stepchild when it offers rich gameplay like this. Well, it's a good match, right? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. In fact, there are so many good matches here in this event. And they've only captured well, a part of it on video. What is your favorite play out of these top eight? Wow, what an interesting question. I think, <laughs> it, it sounds cheesy, but I think that my favorite play is the last play of the tournament, the double snuff-up. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> and, and, and isn't that awesome? It, what better way to end a tournament? It is, because, than removing two because it's so encapsulating. Like I said, the turn he won, he tapped three permanents to tangle wire. That's that's really impressive. That's that's very yes. very impressive. That the turn you win, your opponent has two blockers for you. You tap three permanents to tangle wire. 
kill their blockers and still win that turn. I mean, that's it's a testament to to deck building, understanding the metagame, play skill. He prepped that turn many turns in advance. It's just it has everything. That one play encapsulates everything. I love it. I couldn't agree more. Control matchup is so good and so fun to watch. People need to get a full sense for the scope of vintage, how diverse vintage is, how amazing this format is. But a great job. Yes, great job the DCI has done in managing this format, contrary to Brian DeMar's article. <laughs> I think the DCI has done a phenomenal job. Really has. I mean, they've created this format. We're in a sense, Kevin, all of the eras of vintage exist right now simultaneously. And that's, you know, you get workshop era, you get bug decks, you get gush decks, you get all the various control decks and you could ever want, all converging in one spectacular moment. Bizarre, Oath. Dredge, mm-hmm. Oath, you name it. It's, it's such a great time to be playing vintage. And I just, it's so disappointing the way vintage is treated. And even by the bizarre Moxon folks, you know, let alone the way Wizards has handled the vintage championship. I really hope that if people, at least a few people, can watch these matches, deconstruct them, and begin to appreciate the possibilities that Vintage offers at, highest, at its highest level of play, the depth that it offers, the depth of gameplay. And I hope that folks in Wizards R&D uh, take this kind of message to heart. We've talked in the past about the introduction of power into Magic Online, what it means for the format, and my favorite way to describe that is the meritocracy. I believe that Vintage will survive if it is put on relatively equal footing with other formats. It has all these things that it offers in terms of play skill and deck building and, and the community. And if it's just allowed to exist on an even playing field, it can succeed and, and hold its own. And I think that anyone who's observing this, who's in a position to help the community, either inside or outside of Wizards, should really take that to heart. This format has has it all, and this tournament demonstrates that. And, yeah, I don't even need to put it in terms of, like, on behalf of the community. Just do the right thing on behalf of the format. Agreed. You know, you know, um, one thing that someone on Twitter today said something like, is Vintage dead? <laughs> Let's just be clear about this. Vintage is not dead. There's a 300-player tournament here, right, with a 180-player prelim event. But when people ask that question, and it's, that question has been asked basically every every couple months since 1995, <laughs> right? <laughs> is, is Type 1 dead? Is Type 1 dead? Is Vintage dead? Let's be clear, though. It's Wizards' policies that have rendered, that have marginalized this format and nothing else. The format is, the reason people don't play this format is a direct response to both, A, the lack of tournament support it was given, Mm -hmm. and when Wizards treats the Vintage Championship as it has recently done, that only serves to continue to marginalize this great format. Yeah, it's really a shame. I I hope this, I mean... I have no reason to believe this will become any kind of a pattern for them, and this is just an isolated incident, but it is an isolated incident that speaks to a general lack of support for the format, so you're completely right. And I don't share your optimism about the potential for Power 9, because I think, I'm just cons- I'm just afraid that even when Power 9 is on Magic Online, I think it's going to be in too limited a supply, and the other cards necessary to play the format will continue to essentially replicate, in different ways, the same policies that marginalize Vintage for Paper cards. I agree that there is definitely that risk, and <laughs> I am very skeptical and eager to see how they execute on the stated goal of keeping the Power 9 as Magic's royalty, quote-unquote, because yeah. it's still pretty frightening to me. But who knows, maybe the plans for the Vintage Championship this year, later this year, tied to some celebration of the 20th anniversary, will give us cause for true celebration and maybe do something more for the Vintage format. Yeah. As it stands, I- this Bizarre of Moxon event is representing the format very well, I think. 
in many ways, yes. Mm-hmm. We have some listener feedback I'd like to go through briefly. Sure. What do you got? Okay, so one Storm Storm Manigas asked us about our last um, podcast. He says, how does Possibility Storm get mentioned, but a card like Council of the Absolute isn't even on the list at all? <laughs> and, what about turn, and what about Turn and Burn? That card se- seems like a decent card to include in Landstill as an answer to Little Men in BSC. Kevin, what is your response to that? <laughs> well, Steve, you and I both responded in the Manadrain forums where this originally came from. But I would say there are a number of cards that we could talk about in any given set review and do not. The ones yes. the ones we do mention are because they have a particular interest or they call to mind a particular feature of the card, the set, the game, the format, etc. Our readers or listeners should note that less than half of the cards that we actually discuss in a given set review do we actually predict play for. Many of the cards are just right. included for the interesting topics they bring up. And so by that same rationale, yes. yes, we could talk about many more cards, but we can't do them all. Just to, just that point, you know, we don't just talk about, we'll discuss cards that we don't think we'll see play, but other people will also, if they're innovative or unique, even if we don't think they'll see play from, from a design perspective, if design may have relevance in the abstract to potential future vintage cards. Yep, and we don't mean to imply that the list of cards that we cover is really the only one worth covering. We try to include everything we think we'll see play and then a smattering of other things that are just of interest to us. Yep. On the Library of Alexandria um, topic, you know, our discussion about how both Kevin and I believe libraries are safe and restrict, Cruel Ultimatum said this, as far as your talk of library, talk of library you guys don't make any sense. <laughs> the, big t- the big trump to library is Dark Confidant, so you're saying that a creature that draws an extra card per turn is a trump to a land that draws an extra card per turn? Even if I felt that comment made sense, what about Gutshot? That is a free counter that could still play to combat bobs in the all-powerful notion theme. Library is way too good to unrestrict and would rather see most of the restricted lists unrestricted before that. Kevin, I'll let you have the first step. Well, it, it is not to say that Dark Confidant is an answer to library, but it is to say that playing a library on your first turn narrows your options for interacting with your opponent's early plays. And so yes. when you cast that library and you don't have access to a single blue mana counterspell, for example then the early plays that your opponents have become more potentially potent, difficult to interact with, maybe more relevant. And there are many existing things like Dark Confidant that if you choose to not play a blue mana or some other colored source of mana in favor of maybe drawing a card, then your opponent is going to, on average, resolve a few more Dark Confidants against you, and you're going to lose some games because of that choice. So it's not as though Dark Confidant is some kind of foil to library, but it's representative of early threats that you will have challenges answering immediately by playing a library. Yes. Again, it's not that Dark Confidant trumps library, but that it can help you keep pace with a library. Mm -hmm. Um, I think think our our basic argument is that library is a safe under trick because it's it's not going to dominate tournaments. In in the first place, there are a lot of plays that that can trump a library, like an Oath of Druids, a Lodestone Golem, frankly. 
can trump a library. There are lots of plays in the format that are unrestricted that can combat library. Kevin, you alluded to the fact that there are now more cards than ever that can actually directly answer a library. Directly. Can you just name a few of those? Well, all of the various wasteland effects, there are far more of those. More than any reasonable deck would even play between strip mine, wasteland, ghost quarter, and also maybe Thespian Stage, in addition to other libraries, you could fill a whole mana base of cards that, that answer or remove an opponent's library. Not to mention there's Magus of the Moon, Blood Moon, and Back to Basics, among other things. Absolutely. There are plenty of answers. The metagame would definitely adjust. Even if multiple libraries became some kind of standard, there's no way that they would go rampant or unchecked. The metagame can absolutely adjust. I think one of the the points that the people who are advocates who who are opposed to the unrestricted library make is that library decks can play a lot of free counters, but that doesn't mean that they optimize their their ability to counter early plays by using library. Library will cut them off of a number of early plays. When you play library, you might you might have force, but you can't play spell pierce or flush of storm. And there will be games where you don't have force or you don't have mental misstep, and your opponent plays oath, and that playing the library has cost you the ability to counter that oath or counter that Lodestone Golem, or counter that whatever the case may be, opposing Dark Confidant, right? Absolutely. So so to pretend like library doesn't have a cost is disingenuous, I believe. Yeah. It does have a The bottom line is not that library is going to be unplayable. It'll be quite playable. The point, though, is that it's just not going to be overpowered. It, it, it's not going to dominate the format. It'll just be one of many cards that see play. I certainly don't think it's any it's more dangerous than Thirst, but you could play multiple Thirsts or multiple Gushes per turn. <laughs> And in certain contexts, playing multiple libraries will be the correct choice. Playing three, maybe four of them, will be the right thing to do in certain matchups, and it'll win you some games. But having four libraries in your deck is going to lose you some games, too, in other matchups and other contexts. And fanning open an opening hand that has three libraries and no sources of colored mana is going to be a mulligan more often than it's yes. going to be a back-breaking dominance. Or there'll be people who are inclined to keep hands that have li- like two libraries that end up you not winning that end up losing you the game, right? Even though they draw a bunch of cards. And while you can include, we covered this in the in the episode in question, but while you can include many more free counter spells than we do today, there's a reason you don't play a lot of free counters today. It's because once you get past Force of Will and maybe one misdirection or a couple of mind break traps, they all start to kind of be really really situational. You don't want to put four mind break traps in a deck. Because, yeah, you can draw it more often on turn one thanks to your library, but it's not going to be effective. And the same goes for Misdirection. How good is Misdirection against Bob? How good is Mindbreak Trap against Landmox Oath? <laughs> you know? Or Mental Misstep against Bob or Oath. Right. All these, yeah. all these free counter spells are kept in check due to their own design constraints more than anything. Yes. So just a couple other listener feedbacks that are worth note. Sam Oat says, I disagree with the views on the reaction of Tinker and its targets to BSC. This was, a, I think, in reaction to a point that you made, Kevin, which we discussed earlier in this podcast, which is that despite the, the consolidation effect of, of BSC, BSC has not seemingly declined. Anyway, this person claims Tinker has gone down in playability since the consolidation of Tinker targets to BSC. Why? Because people have properly and accurately built their main deck to react to resolve Tinker BSC. As such, I disagree with Kevin's claim that nothing has changed about how resistant BSC has been since its creation. Check results for the first year of its existence to now, the appearance and success of BSC is down, coupled with a smaller decrease in a smaller decrease in Tinker and Tar- in general. Several blue pilots have eschewed this plan or changed their targets to Time Vault and Key or Memory Jar. What's your reaction to that? The comparison we were drawing at the time was specifically to the diversity of Tinker targets, not yes. not the amount of play that Tinker or Blightsteel has, 
but how Blightsteel replaced most play for all the other things combined. Yes. And so it has, yeah, his response in no way addresses the consolidation because we weren't comparing Tinker to Time Vault Key. By the way, I would, I would also contest his point that people, anyone changed their Tinker target to Time Vault Key. Anyone who had Tinker, <laughs> Tinker for Colossus already had Time Vault Key. <laughs> yeah, the comparison, yeah, exactly. The comparison is just. There's no blue player who started playing Memory Shot. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah, that, I don't know. If that happened, it was a tenth of a percent. The <laughs> the simple fact is is go look at Sphinx of the Steel Wind. Go Zero, look, yeah, and go look at the play of Dark Steel Colossus. Obviously, that's ludicrous. Go look at the play <laughs> of uh, of Inquilla. Platinum Angel and or Inkwell Leviathan. Yeah, go count those instances compared to Blight Steel Colossus, and that's the point. Yeah, yeah, and then um, he, this person says a couple of things, and I have one other piece of bit of feedback. This person says to clarify. Um, through empirical evidence, I have discovered that Library of Alexandria to be a card that puts its controller in almost insurmountable advantage position in blue mirrors. Drawing a card at every turn at the cost of playing an uncountable land on turn one is decidedly powerful, hence the reason it was restricted. Dark Compena is the closest approximation to this effect, although it is decidedly easier to deal with and has the cost of life for a free card. Other played card advantage engines are usable only one time, potentially two through will or X through regrowth will, whereas LOA is recurring. I'll just stop there for a second and let you respond before I read the rest of that bit. Well, a lot of that is just tautology. I mean, that person is just stating features of a card in question. Is there some kind of comparison or conclusion to be based on that? Well, the the thing that's weird is they seem to be implying that like these recursive, uh, these recurring card advantage engines are better than the burst card advantage engines. When, when exactly the opposite is true. I mean, <sighs> thirst thirst is restricted for a reason. Gifts is restricted for a reason. Back was restricted for a reason. Basically, every single burst card advantage spell from Brain Geyser on has been restricted at some point. Um, th- that is not true of the recurring ones. The Jam Day Tome has never been restricted. Dark Confidant has never been restricted. Yes, Library has been, but that's because it's the most efficient of all of those. And it was and it was also because it was restricted in 1994. Right when there was when there was all of maybe two answers to it. Right, and, and by the same token, although you can only use one thirst at a time, you can play four gushes. You can play eight gushes in one turn. Mm-hmm. You can play four thirst for knowledge in one turn. I've seen it done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so like saying you can only do it one one at a time is does not make it safer. Yeah. The, the, the person then says, I played Keeper for years, and this card more than any other was the reason I was successful. Well, I'm not going to point out the fact that Keeper hasn't won or I think even top-aided a major vintage event in in a decade in the United States. So let's not even go there. Um, so I'm questioning the success this person has actually experienced with that. But then they say, I include Library in almost every blue deck that I build that is not playing Forbidden Orchard. Um, and one thing I'll just point out is that Justin Kohler's uh, Bomberman deck does not use Library of Alexandria. So if it was really that good, why isn't he used mm-hmm. right? And also, um, not- you, you can't draw a parallel between the inclusion of the one library you're allowed and the potential for three or four. The opportunity cost of a single library is very low when it comes to how you construct your deck. Exactly. And so it's you, your 16th. Yeah, and so you yeah. include it because it has lots of possible upside and a little bit of downside in your mana base. And not everybody even right. makes that same choice today because the upside isn't really that great given the whole metagame. Sometimes right. it's right to That's, play the one library and sometimes it's not. Exactly. But, Would you play four? Exactly. But when you get to play four, the opportunity cost on your mana base is much bigger. You start to have to cut exactly. certain spells from your deck saying, I can't reliably cast yes. this card now. That's the kind of cost we're referring or, to. Yeah, you have to either cut spells or you have to dig into your your colored mana. Mm-hmm. 
the, the bottom line, though, is I disagree with this idea that library is an insurmountable card advantage and an insurmountable advantage in the blue mirrors. It can be, but it dramatically overstates library's strength, especially on the play. Right, half the time you're on the play. Mm-hmm. I think that I think very often I don't know whether it's a plurality of the time, majority of the time, but very often library is a worse is an inferior play than another play. Whether it's you know Island Brainstorm, Island or uh, Merchant Scroll, whatever the case may be. I mean this was this was I think far more evident when Brainstorm was unrestricted. If you had the option to go, you remember this, and, and there are unfortunately fewer players today who remember this. But if you open the hand that had like Brainstorm, maybe two Brainstorms and a, and a fetch land or two, I would say that the the better play I'm confident saying over fifty percent of the time the better play was brainstorm fetch land brainstorm mm-hmm. then, then turn one library you agree in a lot of contexts yes yeah so i mean it's unfortunate that brainstorm is restricted because you can't see that but the point is that the library is not it, it's good don't get me wrong but it's not nearly as good as this person is saying and a lot of people there was a comparison in one of the comments earlier to dark confidant about how the uh the dark confidant is so easy to deal with for example but a lot of people aren't properly equating the mana cost of library vis-a-vis something like Dark Confidant. Because when you've drawn two cards off of Dark Confidant, you've paid some life and you've paid one black and one colorless mana for those two cards. When yeah. you draw two cards off library, you've played, you've paid two colorless mana for those two cards. As soon as you get to the third card, Dark Confidant is more efficient. That's and true, it gets increasingly more efficient thereafter. You invest once, you invest once, and then you don't have to invest again. Exactly, it's not eating up and your- it's damaging your opponent. Yeah. I mean, if you've got uh, if you've got four Library of Alexandria in play, and your opponent has Dark Confidant, who's going to win the game first? Yes. <laughs> you don't know the answer to that because <laughs> there's yeah. far, far too many variables at play. I think it would be funny to watch this bug deck against library decks. We'll see who wins those. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Put your four library decks against this bug deck and see how it goes. <laughs> um, I'll just one more uh, one more piece of feedback. Um, I don't think we need to belabor this library discussion anymore. Brian PK has says one one thing I pointed out is that I thought that Aether Vial against the library seems fine, and they say, well, no one plays Aether Vial anymore because Mental Misstep ruins it as a first turn play versus control, and Phyrexian Revoker gives shops an out, whereas before it trumped their mana denial strategy entirely. I don't think either reason is true. What do you think of that though? I think those are contributing factors, but they can't be the only ones. I mean, Vile is part and parcel with a whole category of archetype, too, that's not very popular right now. And that ar- yeah. archetype's not necessarily popular because Vile isn't popular. Those two things are hope- hopelessly intertwined and have to be taken in respect to the whole metagame. Yes. You could play Vile right now, and yes, it would have the weaknesses you asserted, but you get to play your own missteps, cool. and you get to play removal on their revokers. Yeah. It's not like your Vile is going to not be functional. Exactly. The first point I would say, I think all your points are valid, but the, the first point I'd say is you don't stop playing with a card because a one casting cost spell because people play mental misstep. That's only, even if they play four, they only have mental misstep 40% of the time, right. which means percent of the time your Aether Vile Mental resolved. missteps typically appear as a two or a three of it most in today's yeah, environment. Yeah, and if you're on the if they're on the play and you play either vile, they're down to five cards immediately, which means their libraries turn off anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not to mention, workshops have, have always had access to null, null rod, so it's not like Phyrexian Revoker is suddenly like it's an, an answer to either vile that did not previously exist. Right, it's a fine response. Don't get me wrong, but I'm sorry, a two-one artifact creature is about the easiest thing in the world to deal with. <laughs> I mean, it is just inherently the most flimsy thing in Magic, a 2-1 artifact creature. 
<laughs> it couldn't be flimsier unless it had the if you target me I disappear clause. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, anyway, um, you know, I, the one other thing that's come out of some of the discussion that I, I think that Cavern of Souls has become increasingly central to the format, and it's been, I think, partially behind Bomberman's recent success. I think we're going to see more and more Cavern of Souls decks. The Bugfish deck may be a, an interruption of that trend, but Cavern of Souls also sort of belies or undermines the claim that, oh, library's fine because people can just play pitch counter magic mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of ha- needing, like, Red Mana to play a lightning bolt or something, right? So. Yeah, and and the existence of Flusterstorm, too, really complicates that whole notion of, I'm just going to counter all your spells. The format has really evolved to the point where counter spells have to be very, very carefully chosen, and you can't just rely on, I'm going to overwhelm you because I have five more cards in my hand than you do. I mean, you can have all the force of wills and mental missteps that you want, and misdirection too. One fluster storm, maybe a cavern of souls, and my spells are going to resolve. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm yep. saying. I also think library inhibits the deployment of Jace, which is no small thing. Jace is such an important play. You know, a lot of decks will, will want to be able to play Jace as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, we also got a couple, uh, in addition to Mandarin feedback, we got a couple of bits of feedback in our email. Um, someone asked a question. Um, actually, one person asked on Twitter, they said, is there an algorithm for building sideboards in Type 1? Um, did you want to take the first stab at it? I thought a little bit about it. Well, and I think I'm just presenting. What a fascinating way to pose the question. An algorithm? I mean, yeah. that implies a whole systemic approach to how you construct a sideboard. And I think that there actually is. I mean, there are exceptions, you know, with a deck like Bugfish, which are very tailored to tweaking the main deck. But for the most part, the most part in broad strokes, you can actually create an algorithm depending on where your position in the metagame. So just just broadly speaking, if you're not a combo deck, you want at least six to seven anti-dredge cards. And in, in depending on what we mean by not a combo deck, so if you're a, a workshop deck in the workshop mirror, you want like a couple workshop cards, maybe two to three. If you're a blue deck, you want like five workshop cards. If you're a combo deck, you want like eight workshop cards. <laughs> So I think I think you could probably look at data top eight decks and extrapolate an algorithm based upon like whether you're a combo deck, an aggro deck, a control deck, or or otherwise on sort of what the ratios are. I agree with your summary, but the the very question itself belies a sort of newness to the format. And I'm wondering that if a person who's asking that question is really in need of direction, they might have trouble identifying what cards are for what matchups looking at a given sideboard, for example. I mean, some of them are obvious. The the ingot chewers really aren't for anything other than workshops, and the leyline of the void, yeah, that's pretty obviously for dredge. But there's a lot of other choices that kind of sit in the middle there, and I don't know. It seems, I think the person who might be asking this question, I have no idea who it is, might be in need of to study a couple of example sideboards, because there's not too much variety in the cards that appear in sideboards, at least among similar archetypes in Vintage. You look at the same deck piloted by different people, and you're going to find a pretty short list of sideboard cards and just a question of ratios, at which point ask a couple of specific questions maybe of of us or of anyone else in the Vintage community that you know about why is this card in this deck's sideboard. handful of questions along those lines, and I think you'll have a, a much better feel and be able to interpret how successful top eight and, and winning decks are constructing their sideboards. I just, I like an algorithmic format, and I think of that word has a lot of different meanings for me personally because I've taken a lot of approaches over the years. 
But the way that such a person asked that question, I think general rules, like you just stated, Steve, combined with some key examples of winning decks and, and asking a few key questions, that'll get you to the understanding you're looking for. Yeah, I think that I think that that's a helpful response. I do think though there is probably some general general heuristics or, or rules of thumb sure. for both sideboards. You know, like like I said, probably if you're a combo deck, you can get away with like burning tendrils. You can probably play zero dredge hate. But if you're not if you're not faster than dredge naturally <laughs> or about the same speed, you probably need and those are probably going to be anywhere from like five to seven cards. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's at least a starting point, right? <laughs> I agree. Yes, there are some general rules, but rules were made to be broken. And you really, to get a sophisticated result, you need to understand uh, where your deck lies in the metagame. And that's a pretty advanced notion, all things considered. True. Well, and then the last piece of feedback, we got a very nice email from a, a listener who says that they only recently discovered our podcast, but they've gone through all our shows twice. <laughs> <laughs> that is crazy. <laughs> it is. It is they continue, it's actually managed to do the impossible and make my daily walk, not only my daily walks to work, but even jogging something I look forward to, as that is when I listen to your show. For that alone, I owe you a huge thank you. I should just mention personally that I listen to an NPR and an ESPN broad, broad, uh, podcast on my workouts, so I, I know that feeling. <laughs> I love the fact that someone can go through and listen to our entire library so far. Uh, I, we've had several people in the past contact us and say, I've listened to the, your first six podcasts so far, and then they sort of drop drop off. <laughs> but if you if you you know want to go back and listen to our entire library, we encourage you to do so. And we'd love to know which episodes you thought were the strongest, which you thought were the weakest, what you thought in terms of substance, what you thought in terms of tone. If you thought that there's an approach that's better or worse, we're always looking for feedback to improve. I think it's awesome. I, when we started doing this, I never ever considered that someone would encounter our show and then go back a year or more in the past just to listen to how it began. That's I think that's awesome. And thank you to everyone who wrote in to us and those who respond to our thread on the drain. I mean, this kind of dialogue is what we live for. Absolutely. With that, let's close with our question for the, for the uh, show. Yes, our question for this episode is about the Bizarre of Moxon winning bug deck. Do you expect to see that deck in the top eight of the NYSE Open coming up in June? I'm really excited to see how that deck will be taken by the United States vintage community and what they do with it. Yeah, I just hope, you know, more than a handful of people actually give it a shot because it's very strong. Definitely. And that brings us to the end of episode 25 of So Many Insane Plays. Thank you for listening. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays on Twitter or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays.